Benjamin Button Legolas does not abide by the laws of physics. Yeah, I would say that's <laughs> true. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 119 of the Movie Bite Podcast. We're going to talk about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, December the 23rd. It is the eve of Christmas Eve, which is the eve of Christmas. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today are two hobbits from the Shire. It's Bilbo Darnell and Samwise Douglas. How are you fine gentlemen today? Good evening, sir. Ho, 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 and hee-haw, Merry Christmas. Yes, is that uh, is that Hobbit speak? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, TJ, come on, Clark, straighten this guy out. It's a little bit of a it's a wonderful life, but I think he was thrown though because he set you up with a with a Bilbo reference. Yeah, and I did. Sort of dodge left. There. <laughs> I was completely. Thrown. I'm sorry. I just didn't. I I just didn't see the Christmas in Baggins. So that's true. I, I mean, and uh, to be fair, I really don't like it's a wonderful life, and I know that makes me a horrible human being, and I'm okay with that. So. Mm. Uh, too much Capricorn for you? Sure. So, uh, how are you, Clark? I'm doing good. And to make it thematically appropriate, I'm smoking my pipe and wishing for some shampoo for my hairy feet Excellent. as Christmas approaches and uh, looking forward to discussing all matters of Hobbiton with you. Yes, that that is uh you got to have shampoo for the for the hairy hobbit feet. Is this what I understand given to understand. It's, you know, it's a, a sensitive issue, but it's one that we all have to deal with here and um you know, I'm hoping Santa will be good to me this year in that department. Uh, I'm sure he will. And uh you your your little your littlest halfling uh we were talking about before the show, you haven't quite got him started down the uh movie Netflix journey yet, but he, I'm sure he's coming along, so yeah, he he is. Uh, you know, we're we're still indoctrinating him with the basics. You know, uh, telling him every night which filmmakers he's supposed to like and dislike <laughs> before he goes to bed. So he just kind of has that in the back of his mind when he starts. Of course, I'm kidding. The, the young ones but, must be catechized. Yes. In, in the, <laughs> all right. Um, well, why don't we dive into some uh, some follow up here? What has happened to the show? I'm not sure what's happened to the show, Joe. I'm not sure at all. Uh, which is why I'm trying to direct us to some follow-up. Uh, and a couple episodes <laughs> back, we we talked about um, Andy Serkis possibly being the voice that we heard in the Star Wars 7 teaser. You were on that episode, Clark, and that was, was. actually confirmed. Uh, Kate, yes, Kate Erbland over at the Dissolve. Not that we really had any question about it, but there were some dissenters uh, in the crowd that said it wasn't and thought it was Benedict Cumberbatch. And she says, Kate over at the Dissolve says, yes, that is the voice of the film's teaser trailer. Uh, that is his voice in the film's teaser trailer, speaking of Andy Serkis. Although this has been roundly confirmed, particularly after a brief period of time when everyone was convinced that it, the voice belonged to Benedict Cumberbatch, who isn't even in the film, probably. It's nice to hear Serkis confirm it. He added other another tidbit of this to this confirmation. The voice used in the teaser is the actual voice of his character. Creepy. 
So just wanted to follow up on that and mm. confirm that. I think that it's a little surprising. Mm. I think it's just a little surprising to us that are used to Circus's other performances where he was using squeaky voices. Yeah, I mean, but I think he's, you know, I'm his. It was pretty close to his Caesar voice. Yeah. In in uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, we just didn't get enough of that though. Hmm. Well, I I was going to say he's nothing if not versatile. Um, if I remember my own thoughts on that podcast correctly, I wasn't incredibly taken with the voice that was being used no, in the trailer. Weren't. You weren't. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe it'll work better in the fuller context of the movie. I do like Andy Serkis a lot, but um, it wasn't really doing much for me Yeah. in those few seconds that it was featured. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. It wasn't really doing it for me. But again, if, if that is the actual voice of the character, maybe in the context of the film, it makes more sense or we won't notice sure. it. So, you know, there, there's always that sort of angle. But um, yeah, so I don't want to dwell there too much. We already spent a lot of time talking about that uh, in that particular episode, but I wanted to follow but up. But we had it. to get our mention in about Star Wars. So it's good that we got that out of the right, way. Right, the Star Wars Bite podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then well, so we're done. we can move on to this Trek bite. Yeah. The Trek bite podcast is now coming up. Um, and the news on the street is now that Justin Lin will be directing the next Star Trek film. He's known for having directed fast five and fast and furious six. Uh. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Kayla, uh, I, I Covino over at, I don't know how to pronounce her name over at trekmovie.com. Uh, she says that after the announcement that Bob Orsi would no longer be manning the director's chair for Star Trek III, rumors began flying as to who would take his place. Many questions about the switch remained unanswered, but we finally know who will be the next leader of Trek on the silver screen. Justin Lin, who directed Fast and Furious 6, has reportedly taken over the role. Discuss. I'll say this much about Justin Lin. Um, he's not an untalented director, and specifically... He's a very gifted action director. He knows how to choreograph an action scene. Uh, he He's one of the better guys in the business working at the moment in that department. And he's really elevated the Fast and the Furious series from something completely disposable into something that's disposable but a whole lot more fun than it ought to be. Mm. That being said, um, he doesn't strike me as a Star Trek director. Not at but all. But then again, he may well be a good fit for this particular incarnation of the Star Trek series. Um, I don't really see Star Trek as an action franchise, but apparently J.J. Abrams does, and uh, that seems to be the direction Paramount is going to with this pick, unless they're planning something completely different that's going to surprise me. But um, it seems to me they went for somebody who has serious action chops and so-so dramatic chops, and uh, I'd almost rather it be the other way around when it comes to Star Trek. But here we are, and um, I'll, I'll say that it's a step up from Orchie. That's about the best I can give it. You think so? I do, because Orchie um, is too embedded in the things that I've really disliked about the series up to this point. So I think this at least um, gives it a chance to go off in a new direction that might work a little bit better. Yeah, I hope you're right. And, and, and all of this is because of my love for the franchise and how I feel like the first, at least the first um, uh, Star Trek film was not what I wanted out of the franchise. And, and the second film was closer, but it was still very J.J. Abrams. And 
I just feel like Justin Lin is going to be more of the same in a lot of ways. But and this is coming from the guy who is now rewatching Star Trek The Next Generation now that it's come out in HD remastered because I'm, I'm a nerd that way. And mm-hmm. I have to – every time I watch that series uh, past the second season because the first and second season, while there was a couple of good ones mixed in there, not so great. But then when you get into the third season and they really start letting Patrick Stewart shine – like he he you know a lot of yeah. a lot of trek fans are like you know oh kirk is the captain and patrick stewart was just a you know he was never any good and what whatever patrick stewart is my you know captain picard is my captain of star trek as far as i'm concerned that is the cap the the that is the one <laughs> and and uh we're not we're just not getting anything like that to me that is star trek that is what star trek is is patrick stewart <laughs> and and you know for better or for worse in my opinion it's much better than what we're getting now and yeah i just feel like justin lynn is more of the same well, and I feel like even even larger than Patrick Stewart, and I would agree. I mean, he's he's my captain too, and probably the best character in Star Trek history. But uh, Star Trek is fundamentally a show in a film series too about ideas, and uh, the J.J. Abrams series has not been, to put it mildly. No, uh, not it, at all. it's very much a a, a Star Wars esque space adventure with a Star Trek coat of paint on it. And yes. uh, while that's been entertaining at times, it could be argued, um, it, it's not what I want from a Star Trek series. Nope. But I'm an old stick in the mud. So. <laughs> well, uh, and here, here's my angle, too, is they've had their chance to expand Star Trek to a broader audience. I feel like that's what this entire reboot of the franchise has been about, and yeah. they haven't really been successful in doing that. I think that the numbers show that – and and certainly when I went to see – Star Trek, both films in the theaters when they, when they came out, there was no, the theaters were filled with nothing but Trekners. Like there was not a single person there who was not invested in the franchise. And so I think they need to put down the, the mm-hmm. mantle of trying to expand it and, and say, here's our fan base. This is what we got. Let's make a movie they really like. And then they'll get the, the domino effect from that rather than, than, alienating us all i know i'm pontificating here but but rather than alienating us all and and making a a film that we don't like that much and trying to appeal to others but we're not out really evangelizing the film the the way we normally would be if we really liked it and i think that they're doing themselves a disservice that way it sounds like a business decision on the part of the studio is all they're like look at this guy he makes money off of his car movies well he can probably make money off of these movies yeah, I, I definitely think that's that's the case. Is That's why he was brought in. I could live with the movie series going the direction it's gone uh, a whole lot more if they would let Star Trek return to television in some form. Get another show going there. Let that do the idea-driven stuff. And if you want to turn the movies into great big action-driven blockbusters, that would be a little easier to swallow if I had something that felt like real Star Trek. Uh, it could even be set you know, in the same continuity, but with a different tone. Um, and different characters, perhaps that that would be quite pleasing to me. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It that I I feel like and there's been a lot of conversation about this in in the Star Trek world that that Star Trek fundamentally is a TV show, and and that, that Star Trek should be on TV. And the movies have been okay, but they haven't been slam dunks. I you know there was to me there was you know two slam dunks. And a couple of good ones, and then a lot of mediocre stuff. And and so I think there's some right. merit, some merit to that, where Star Trek belongs on uh, TV, and and the stories can be told better that way. So I I agree with you. I'd like to see Star Trek on TV again. And unfortunately, I think the Enterprise kind of destroyed any hopes of of getting that anytime soon. But 
I mean, because because the the studios, the suits at the studio, all they do is they point at, at at Enterprise and say, "Well, look, it didn't Star Trek on TV doesn't do any good." It's like, well, that wasn't Star Trek on TV. <laughs> do you guys remember TNG? That was Star Trek on TV. It went for seven seasons and it was awesome, you know. And and for that matter, DS Nine too. Um, even though DS Nine is a much mm-hmm. different tone, it was a good series. So, uh, yeah, I, I know we're boring Joe to death, but. Uh, <laughs> Not at all, not at all. You, you make me out as like uh, just like this Star Wars nut who couldn't care less and snoozes through it's, Star Trek movies. It's my shtick. The only one I've slept through uh, thus far has been the first one. Uh, there's no. There, <laughs> I would never recommend a non you know died in the wool Star Trek fan see the first movie. <laughs> it's it's not good. <laughs> it's. It's an amazing Jerry Goldsmith music video. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's absolutely right. <laughs> oh, thank you, Clark. You cleared that up for me. <laughs> I know this is a lot of Star Trek, but I can't. I have to be who I am. Um, the 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 other news. There's two more bits of news about Star Trek. Or and and this is related to the first. It's in the same article. Uh, rumors are, are abounding that Paramount has expressed a desire for Star Trek Three to be more like Guardians of the Galaxy. No, 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 no. Wrong, wrong direction. Wrong idea. (laughs) Back up. Go down a different road. That is not Star Trek. Guardians of the Galaxy is great. It wouldn't make good Star Trek. No, no, no. I'm I'm preparing myself right now for more Keenzer, and and it's not a good. It's not a pretty sight I have in my head. I just don't want that sort of comedy in Star Trek. Well, and that's you know. Another series, that, or another movie at least, um, it's not quite a series yet, but uh, a movie that owes a great debt to the sort of tone of Star Wars, and Star Trek is already trying to do that anyway, so I can only imagine how much further they would take it, I guess, littering pop songs all over the soundtrack and making the characters a little funnier, but <laughs> I guess you know, it's not a million miles away at this point with the direction Abrams has taken it. It's not, but it is still fundamentally different. Um, yeah. And then I'll just I'll just mention this because we just found out today, this is on trekmovie.com, that Star Trek, uh, the, the new film is now scheduled, has a release date of July 8th, 2016. So we're a year and a half out, basically. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll see what they have cooked up for us. I don't know what to say to that, except that that sounds like it's a good timeline. Uh, yeah, sure. And I, I'll say that uh, we'll, we'll probably hear another huge round of bits and pieces of news that we'll all complain about, but I'll still be there opening day without a doubt. Oh, for sure. I I will. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I wanted to, Joe, you, you kind of fought me on this and I told you to back off. Mm. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You didn't really want to talk about this. So if you don't, if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to. But I thought it's 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 almost like if we don't talk about it, they'll be like, you you guys are living under a rock, right? Because you know about this, right? Uh, and this is the whole hacking situation where uh, Sony has been majorly hacked and North Korea apparently has been named as at least being heavily involved or funding the, the attack and the hack. And uh, I, I thought that uh, Keith Phipps, uh, who runs the Dissolve, wrote a really compelling article about it. And, and, and I, thought it, I thought, Joe, it was fairly safe to talk about because I lit- honestly – I have rarely seen such uh, bipartisan support. If you want to, if you want to take it political, and there's certainly a political aspect to this, uh, but but on on every from every aisle, 
basically saying we you know sony can do what they want but they really probably shouldn't be caving to terrorists you know or uh you know that like and 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 like who do we really think that they could have pulled off what they were threatening to, to do like i it was all just you know words and at the same time i do have a lot of sympathy for the theater owners and for sony like what what happens if if they did follow through even if just one theater was hit by an, a 9-11 style attack which is what they threatened uh, when they when the, after they hacked Sony and they you know told them don't don't release this movie that puts Kim Jong Un in a bad light uh, because you know we're gonna we're gonna kill people in your theaters uh, like what would happen if even a single theater had that like you know so it's a really it's a it's a rock and a hard place at the same time like is is Kim Jong Un now controlling what we see that's that's kind of disturbing uh so that that's i mean i just felt like it was at least worth mentioning and talking about a little bit and i haven't actually talked to you much about this clark i so you know your your opinion is not known to me and and joe's your joe yours really isn't either you've been pretty quiet about it so what, what do you guys think about all this um i think it's a lot stickier than we would like to think because uh a lot of the american people talk about this on political terms and we're talking about foreign policy we're talking about policy regarding terrorists also regarding Sony, which is a very large conglomerate that has, you know, uh, a large number of customers in the U S but also around the world. Movies are not just made for American audiences anymore. So a lot of the movies we've been reviewing TJ, we've noticed that if they didn't have uh, worldwide audiences, they would not turn a profit. And it's very possible, I don't to know to what extent, the, uh, theaters have a presence in countries like North Korea, but surely their country knows that a lot of the Koreans will listen and watch American media resources and movies. So they're going to get really political about well, it. They're, uh, it. It makes sense with their their politics. It makes sense with their stance, where their country is. Their communism. That they would like to do... Uh, uh, Yes. Clark, you've been trying to butt in here. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, the movie was never going to be shown, at least never, it was never going to be shown officially in North Korea. No. Uh, the only things that can be shown in North Korea are the things approved by the North Korean government, and that is almost exclusively limited to North Korean propaganda. Naturally. Right, right. But um, I- anything that people do see in that country is stuff that's you know smuggled in illegally, and if you get caught with that stuff, you can actually be executed for having unapproved uh, entertainment materials in your home. So I, I don't I don't think you know actually showing it in North Korea was ever much of an issue, but this is a very interesting situation. And you know by the time we finish talking about it, it'll probably be out of date because it seems to evolve a little bit more every sure. single day. Yes, yes. Uh, the the most recent news is that the movie is going back into theaters again, not in the wide release that was originally planned, but in a limited release, including in, uh, in my home state of Georgia and Atlanta at the Plaza theater. And, um, it's also allegedly being made available on video on demand on Christmas day. Uh, I'm curious to see which, providers will offer it because I know before there had been resistance from a lot of the folks like Amazon and iTunes and these different people who were worried about being hacked if they did make the movie available. So I don't know how many people they'll have offering it on demand, but, uh, 
it, it's certainly an interesting situation, and things have changed quite a bit over the course of the past 24 hours. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a, an article on The Verge right now that says that The Interview, which is the name of the film that North Korea basically demanded not be shown or they would attack 9-11 style, says The Interview will be in select theaters on Christmas Day. Uh, that's what the headline says, and I haven't read much of the article here as you were talking, but um, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. It's certainly an evolving situation. I'm also reading an article right now in the Tennessean um, that says the Belcourt Theater and the Franklin Theater, both theaters, by, by the way, which I have been to from, at different times, uh, says that they will be screening the interview as well. Uh, so certainly select theaters are now going to be showing it. I feel like maybe Sony has kind of backed down from there. At first, I think their position was, we don't know what's going on. We don't know the legitimacy of these threats. Let's not take any chances. And I can respect that. Uh, and, and I did feel like some people were pretty hard on them saying, hey, uh, you know, you shouldn't cave to terrorist demands. Uh, that, that's not quite a fair asset. Like, like they're not, they're, they're not a government with a military. They're an, a private company that are thinking only of their own interest and the interest of their uh, patrons, you know, and, and, and it's like, well, if, 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 if anybody, if even a single theater is attacked and people die, that's not going to be good for us. It'd be better to, to take our losses and, and not show it. I can't say I'm completely happy with Sony and the way they've handled the situation, but they're no. probably the people I'm least upset with in the midst of this. Uh, I'm a little bit more upset at the theater owners who, when when given the the choice, all backed down very, very quickly and uh, said, no, we aren't going to show this. But I'm most disappointed with the other movie studios like Paramount. out there who well, – sure, like Paramount, but but really all of them. Uh, I don't know if you read any of the uh, interview that George Clooney gave a few days ago where he talked about bringing a petition to the heads of all of the major studios asking them for a basic sort of statement of support that we support Sony in this and uh, we are not going to back down to the demands of terrorists and if they go after us, we'll stand up to them and – so on and so forth, but none of the studios would sign it. None of them would even come forward with even the most basic sort of gesture of, if you show this movie, we'll support you and stand behind you. Uh, which struck me as really just sort of incredibly self-serving and um, a little bit cowardly, honestly. But uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of amazed. And apparently there were other studios pressuring Sony to get the interview out of theaters because they were worried that if Sony left it in, people would be afraid of terrorist attacks and it would hurt their business for their other Christmas blockbusters they have playing over the yeah, holidays. Yeah, yeah. I've also dropped an article in the show notes uh, where George Clooney had an interview with uh, Deadline um, and uh, talked – and I think that's what you're talking about with Mike Fleming Jr.? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, so that's in the show notes, and I won't belabor it. I uh, just wanted to talk about it a little bit and say it's a it's a weird situation. It's certainly um, the one thing that um, that Kevin uh, Keith Phipps over at the Dissolve uh, said was that we are deep in uncharted territory, and it doesn't look like a place we should stay. And I I wholeheartedly concur with with that assessment. <laughs> Uh, but but really, his his article will be yeah. in the show notes, and it is worth your time to read. It's not a long article, and I, I really uh, thought that was a really yeah, great— Yeah, it, it's definitely one of the better takes I've read on this whole situation thus far. For sure, yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to something much more interesting. Um, and uh, I don't know what people's feelings are on this. I, f- I feel like this film is one that will be kind of maligned or whatever, but I've enjoyed all, most of the trailers that I've seen for this uh, and so this is a clip from the upcoming film, Kingsman, The Secret Service. Uh, this is a, a clip from the trailer. 
Mr. DeVere, you like spy movies? Nowadays, they're all a little serious for my taste. Oh, when I was a kid, that was my dream job. Gentleman spy. I always thought the old Bond films were only as good as their villain. What a shame we both had to grow up. So that was a clip from the uh, trailer for the upcoming film, Kingsman, The Secret Service. I think it looks uh, pretty uh, fun. Like, you know, very um, uh, very irreverent of any anything in the spy genre. Uh, you know, kind of a almost a parody of a James Bond kind of thing going on. I, I think that looks like a lot of fun. What do you guys think? I'm looking forward to it. I love Colin Firth and Samuel Jackson. We also have Mark Hamill. Yeah, Do we yeah. Know who he's playing? Yeah, um, he's. I don't know exactly who he's playing. He's actually in this trailer, uh, and he's like tied up, and and uh, the the villain, the primary villain, like uh, sets him free and tells him that he's uh, uh, he's skittish of blood. And I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I I don't know that I've ever actually seen Mark Hamill in anything other than Star Wars. And of course, I've heard his voice in a few animated things. So yeah, that that's definitely very interesting. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward just to see what kind of what Mark Hamill's doing these days in terms of acting, you know, or if he even can act. I think it could be fun. Uh, it's directed by Matthew Vaughn, of course, and uh, I don't know if either of you have seen his movie Kick Ass from a few years ago. I have not. Um, it, it, I would anticipate that we're going to be looking at something in kind of a similar vein as far as its sensibility, the way that movie kind of deconstructed. Um, superhero movies in a kind of satirical and over-the-top violent sort of way, I would imagine this is going to be doing much the same thing for Bond-style spy movies. Um, so that's it, it's probably going to be something which is going to be a little bit divisive among certain audience members because it's it seems to be a very kind of brash, in-your-face sort of thing, but it could be fun. The thing I'm most intrigued by is Samuel L. Jackson's accent. Yeah, what is up with which that? Which is a, uh, a very interesting... It's it's like a weird sort of lispy kind of thing, but um, yeah, uh, that that's one that I'm very curious to to hear how it plays in the full context of the movie because I still can't decide whether or not it works. Yeah, it is very strange. It's you, you most often hear that sort of lisp, like if if somebody has a huge gap, huge gap in their two front teeth, and he obviously doesn't in the trailer. Um, so it's very strange. Uh, I don't, I don't know what he's trying to pull off there, but I'll say this for Samuel L. Jackson. He's somebody who's never been afraid of making big choices acting wise. So, uh, good for him for going for it, whatever he's doing. That's true. Joe, did you watch the whole trailer? I did. I really enjoyed it. The only thing I stopped in the middle of were the featurettes because I felt like they were giving too much away. Yeah. I think I'm definitely going to enjoy this film. So at that point, I was like, okay, you sold me. Uh, hey, yeah, you didn't have to go that far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like the future were giving that much away for me, but that, then I'm, I'm going to see this no matter what, and I think I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, it, it. It sort of has that uh, – um, did you guys – either of you ever see Johnny English? Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel quite like that, but in some ways it does. Like, it, it feels like that parody of the spy genre, but not quite as stupid. Like, Johnny English got a little too stupid for me, where this feels like it's like a, almost a smart kind of humor. At least from the trailers, that's what I'm getting. You know, obviously the main character is not as dumb as, as uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Bean. What, what's, his, what's that actor's name? Um, uh, 
Mr. B. Uh, Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson, yes. Uh, you know, obviously Colin Firth has a lot more dignity attached to him. I'm like, he just brings a lot more presence to, to that role. So I don't, I don't see this going down quite that road. Maybe more along the lines of, um, uh, get smart perhaps, or maybe, maybe like, maybe somewhere in between the two, if there, if there's like a, a spectrum, you know, I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to it. And, and I, I've seen some people kind of poo-pooing it, you know, here and there and on social media, but I, I think it'll be fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I wanted to mention too, you were talking about Mark Hamill not too long ago. And one thing that I heard, I haven't read the graphic novel that this is based on, but evidently in the graphic novel, uh, Mark Hamill, the real life guy is a character in the story. Oh, but in the movie, uh, he's playing an entirely different character <laughs> That's <laughs> rather weird. than playing himself. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly intriguing. Yeah, that is weird. Like I, I, when you said that, I thought, oh, maybe he's playing Mark Hamill, but then you went on to say, well, he's not. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to think. <laughs> Um, anyway, the release date for that film is February the 13th, 2015. So, uh, February has not traditionally been a great time for movies, but I, I feel like that there's been a, at least a move to try to make February not a dumping ground for bad movies. So we'll see. All right. With that, uh, I think that we're going to start moving in the general direction of our review this evening. Um, and to start that off, um, I thought that the, uh, the honest trailer for the Hobbit, the desolation of Smaug, uh, it, it sort of typifies exactly why I like uh, honest trailers. So let's uh, let's take a quick peek at that. From the director who still doesn't know how to quit while he's ahead comes the fifth Tolkien movie in the second installment of the second trilogy that's so bloated by now, even its own characters are getting bored. We go round in circles. We're never going to reach the mountain, are we? We are lost. This is taking too long. <laughs> The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. I thought that uh, the only thing that I thought they missed a really good opportunity there with the title uh, to to say The Desolation of Tolkien. <laughs> but, you know, no, 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 the honest trailers, none of them can be completely perfect. So uh, I really enjoyed that. That'll be in the show notes. I'm assuming you guys enjoyed it as well. I, I did, but not as much as some of the other honest trailers. I felt like this one was taking uh, the low-hanging fruit. But there's a lot. There's so much low hanging fruit with this franchise, though. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're expanding on a children's bedtime story. So if it's going to play the the background origins of Lord of the Rings, yeah, you're going to have a lot of Peter Jackson style filler. It's no different than King Kong. And for what it's worth, it's not half as bad as other action films these days. What did you expect? It's not going to be chop full of brilliant soliloquy. Well, I, I will say this much, and this is coming from somebody who's a, a pretty big fan of the Hobbit series in comparison to most folks, but uh, this series has about as much story as King Kong, but stretched out over three movies, whereas King <laughs> Kong did all of that in three hours. Like if, if King Kong were the Hobbit series, like we would have had the whole first movie would have been about their trip to the island. And you like see maybe Kong in the distance at the end of the movie or something, or you see his eye like you do with smog. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, it's an easy target for ridicule. And but, remember, we're and, talking about the desolation, right? <laughs> we're not even talking about part three yet. <laughs> right. And, um, but the series is, uh, one that I, I enjoy despite it's, it's obvious weaknesses. 
Yeah, I mean, sure. It's it's, uh, and I would say that uh, actually, the Desolation of Smaug was the best of of the three movies. Having now seen the third movie, um, but yeah, I mean, the, I feel like there's this movement in Hollywood to stretch out and uh, make things over long and over tired and try to get more money out of them and just milk that cash cow for all it's worth. And it's just, it's frustrating. And I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed this honest trailer is they were poking fun at exactly that. And, and, you know, Peter Jackson doesn't know how to quit when he's ahead. And as we'll get into in a little bit, you know, I feel like some of my issues with this third film stem from the fact that the second script was split because it was originally two two parts. The Hobbit was in two parts, and it feels exactly like the the second script was split in half. And it just it's frustrating. The whole thing is just frustrating, and nothing about this movie, these three movies, justified them being three movies. That's I, I, that's why I feel like I really enjoyed this Honest Trailer. I feel like the Honest Trailers are at their best when they are poking fun at something that we all sort of enjoy. But at the same time, like, the problems are glaringly obvious and so big you can drive five semi-trucks wide through the holes, you know. So, uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of where I'm at on the, uh, on the, that. And that's why I enjoyed the, the Honest trailer. So, anyway, uh, that's all I had to say about that. That'll be in the show I notes. do appreciate their wisecracks. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They're honest trailer is always worth watching, even if sometimes they don't quite nail it. Yeah. And I felt like they really nailed it with this one. Uh, so, all right. And then the other thing in the, uh, the show notes here is that, uh, I wanted to mention that Peter Jackson laments the, uh, franchise driven and visual effects driven Hollywood. His quote is, I don't really like the Hollywood blockbuster bandwagon that exists right now. The industry and the advent of all the technology has kind of lost its way. It's become very franchise driven and superhero driven. Drop mic, walk away. <laughs> I mean, does the guy not hear the words coming out of his mouth? What is going on here? Is this an alternate reality? Is this real life? Are you, Joe? Yeah, well, I mean, in his defense, you got to remember that Peter didn't originally want to make these films. He wasn't jumping up and down saying, oh, yes, let's milk all the movies. Let's milk it all. You know, he wasn't out to try and do this to Tolkien's work. Yeah, and I feel like we would have been happier with Guillermo del Toro's version, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced of that. I think that it would be lovely to see what del Toro could do, but I'm not convinced that his would necessarily have been inherently superior. The del Toro series certainly would have been different in tone from Jackson's. Uh, I don't know if either of you have had a chance to watch much of the uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries on the the Hobbit movies, but the, on, on the first one, there's some interesting if brief stuff about uh, what Peter, what Guillermo del Toro had in mind for the series. And it seems like it was very much in line with his sensibilities and would have felt tonally uh, a bit different from the Lord of the Rings and been kind of a separate thing, even though it's, you know, connected to it in many ways, obviously, whereas Peter Jackson wanted to make something that felt a lot more like Lord of the Rings. So it's hard to say, you know, without having seen one side of that, which is superior, but, um, you know, it's, it's a very interesting situation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's easy to speculate about what it might've been or, you know, well, especially when you're lamenting the state of, of something that you wanted to like, something that you felt like could have been a beloved thing and you're lamenting the direction that it took and you're like, well, it would have been better if so-and-so would have done such and such. And it's all, I mean, it, it is what it is. So I, I, I totally get that. But at the same time, I, I look at Guillermo del Toro and I think if for nothing, if, if for no other reason, he would have brought a fresh perspective 
to the um, to the Hobbit series, to the Hobbit franchise, this you know trilogy of films, or at the time when he was supposed to direct, it was going to be two films. He would have brought a different perspective than Peter Jackson, which would have served the film better because it's not the Lord of the Rings. It's it's before the Lord of the Rings. It's before the Dark Times. It has a completely different feel and tone, and it feels like Peter Jackson didn't quite know how to do that. I mean, if I'm being honest, it just feels like he really didn't know how to do something other than, oh, this is Middle Earth. Let's make it feel like Lord of the Rings, except that it's not and I can't quite get there. You know, I don't know. (sighs) Those are my frustrations. Right. But that has a lot to do with the source material as well. No, I get that. I, I mean, but I'm I'm saying that his his look and feel his the feel of his film is not consistent with the source material. It's more consistent with, um, I want it to be Lord of the Rings, but it's not quite. And so it's not. And so it just feels off. If we're going to be completely fair here, though, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies aren't really consistent to the tone of the source material either. Uh, there's Even though the Lord of the Rings books are darker and heavier than The Hobbit uh, by a considerable amount, there's a lightness and a kind of quaint British charm about Tolkien's writing that's almost completely lost you see traces of it but in both series uh that's sort of nowhere to be found and it's replaced by peter jackson's much more sort of thunderous dark gothic fantasy kind of style yeah yeah, i don't disagree yeah so what we're saying is that this is lord of the rings trilogy's expanded universe material yeah yeah, yeah, it it's uh I I think that maybe what what I'm feeling I, I agree um and and I have not read through I've read parts of the Hobbit I tried to read through it and I just life you know and and I've same thing with Lord of the Rings and I agree like the tone of Tolkien in general is lighter than what Peter Jackson has given us but I feel like Lord of the Rings lends itself more to the to the dark tone that Peter Jackson gave the the the, the films. And and I'm not. It's not like I'm a purist here. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm I'm dying for the films to be pure to what Tolkien's books were. Uh, I I am by no means a purist. So, uh, like I feel like um, uh, sometimes when the departure one of my uh, one of my beloved series that I have read all the books for, uh, you know, that I mentioned from time to time, Harry Potter. I didn't want the movies necessarily to always follow exactly the books. So I'm not coming at this from a purist standpoint. But I'm saying that in this case, Peter Jackson really just missed the mark with The Hobbit, whereas The Lord of the Rings, it felt more appropriate. That's, I guess that's the angle that I'm coming at this from. I can agree to that. Uh, but at the same time, for what uh, – you know, personal taste-wise, you know, I, I read The Lord of the Rings twice all the way through and I picked up uh, The Hobbit and I tried to get into it. But I really didn't get into the story in the original source material itself. So I wonder if also we have a problem with uh, with tastes. Because for what it is worth, it seems to me that Lord of the Rings is a more widely appealing story before you allow for Tolkien or Peter Jackson's interpretations thereof of that material in the first place. It just like the material, it's the, the, the story in and of itself, the cast of characters and the setting, the time in which they're taking place are already more or less uh, attractive than what we have with a story like the Hobbit mm. because it, the Hobbit kind of suffers from having a quality about it. That's reminiscent of Indiana Jones played in middle earth. Even before <laughs> you have the desolation of smog trying to pretend to be an Indiana Jones film, like you already have so many characteristics that feel just like this is an adventure that could be told in any magical world or even in a medieval time of your own, except that it happens to be told in middle, middle earth. So it is. 
Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to move on to the actual review of this third film in the franchise, uh, and so move away from the overview. But the one thing that I do want to do before we do that is uh, I want to recommend this video that you put in the show outline, Joe, because I really I really enjoyed it. Uh, I do have some uh, enough nerdiness in me, although I'm not a Tolkien nerd. That's sort of my wife's department and my family. Uh, I do understand uh, where people are coming from on that, and I do like the Tolkien universe and world. Uh, and and this sort of puts some things into perspective that um, that, that I had not fully realized before. My, my wife has told me on different occasions, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, Gandalf is actually this sort of creature, which is equivalent to this sort of creature, and that's why he was able to hold his own against the Balrog and blah, blah, blah. And, and it just – it didn't quite gel for me, and this video really kind of helped put that – uh, into perspective, it kind of goes through the family tree, if you will, of Middle Earth. Um, and Joe, you, you're the one that put this in the show outline, so why don't why don't you tell us a little more about it? Well, the gist of the video is is that it's based on all the contents of the Silmarillion and how it stacks the various levels of angelic beings, the god whose name is uh, or the, he is called the Iluvatar over Middle Earth and how they have various ranks, various power based on their ranks and how they trickle down to just be the ordinary creatures you see all the time in the Middle Earth, uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. And without some of this understanding, you will misunderstand a lot of what happens in the films. Like you've already pointed out, if you go back to the first Jackson film, where you have the gigantic uh, fire, fiery demon-like creature called the Balrog fighting Gandalf, it feels like there's no match here. Obviously, the Balrog should win. But then, in the context of the, of the source material, you understand that uh, though this be this big Balrog's uh, power may seem very de- you know formidable, definitely for the humankind and the elvish kind. He's actually on par with Gandalf, but this is all explained in the video very, very uh, quickly and tidily. Like you might went from, say, the instruction manual for a video game that's just going to tell you really quickly what you know moves your player can make and what moves your (laughs) opponents can make, so you can get to the game and you can say, ah, well, I better not do the punch kick combo because I know he's going to come back with a fireball, you know, because you know he's going to outrank you any day. Um, it sort of feels like that when you're watching this video and it, and it definitely sets the, you know, the stage well for these films. All right. Uh, Clark, did you have a chance to watch that? I did not. Okay. You'll have, you'll have to do that. Sometime. Sounds nifty though. Yeah, no, it, it was pretty fun. It was a little fast. I'm yeah. going to have to watch it again to, to kind of, uh, get it really settled in my head. But, uh, yeah, highly recommended resource relevant to today's movie review. So with that, let's jump in to our review of The Hobbit, the longest movie trilogy on, I I mean The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies. Thorin, you gave a promise. You brought upon them only ruin and death. You've won the mountain, is that not enough? something of mine. This was the last move in a master plan. A plan long in the making. That was from the trailer for The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies. 
Uh, it was released on December the 17th, 2014, so just a few days ago. It had a budget of $250 million. It opened to $54.7 million domestically, and it is now at a worldwide gross of $367.1 million. The Rotten Tomatoes critic consensus is that, though somewhat overwhelmed by its own spectacle, The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies, ends Peter Jackson's second Middle-Earth trilogy on a reasonably satisfying note. As noted, the director is Peter Jackson. Writers Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, Peter Jackson, and Guillermo del Toro and it is based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the stars, there's a long list of stars in this film. Ian McKellen, Martin Freeman, Luke Evans, Ryan Cage, Benedict Cumberbatch, Richard Armitage, Ken Stott, Graham McTavish, William Kircher, James Nesbitt, Stephen Hunter, Dean O'Gorman, Aidan Turner, John Collin, uh, Peter Hambelton, Mark Hadlow, Adam Brown, Orlando Bloom, Evangeline Lilly, Lee Pace, Kate Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, Christopher Lee, Ian Holm, this movie might be a little bit bloated and top-heavy. <laughs> the composer is uh, Howard Shore, <laughs> and uh, the storyline is something that Joe is going to tell us. Take it away, Joe. Okay, at the start of the film, the dwarves and Bilbo watch helplessly as Smog the Dragon attacks Lake Town, burning it to rubble. Oh, shoot, shoot, shoot. Am I giving away too much? Should, I, we, should we sound the spoiler horn first? Uh, that's pretty well known, Joe. Why don't you, and that's like at the top okay, of the movie. For, I would, I would, I would start over and just go with it. Well, what about the part that's going to come next in this storyline? Okay. Just, just run. Yeah. I'll okay. let you know if I feel differently, but everybody has been warned. Okay. Spoiler alerts. Follow. Gandalf dies. Uh, burning the town to rubble <laughs> and taking the villagers with it. Okay. So uh, Bard, hey, the Joe, fisherman Joe, slash, huh? can, can huh? you, can you just start back at the beginning? There's no clean way to get into this if you don't. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, my, my editor there hat are, is on here. There are spoilers. Just, just go. <laughs> I know, just go but with it. there are spoilers in the storyline. I'm just saying. Okay. We haven't mentioned that before. Okay. okay, so at the start of the film, the dwarves and Bilbo watch helplessly as Smog the Dragon attacks Lake Town, burning it to rubble and taking many villagers' lives with it. Bard, the fisherman slash bowman, fights the dragon to the death to save the lives of his people. After his victory... There isn't time to celebrate and rebuild, because winter is coming, and there are elves, dwarves, and orcs on the march that all want to take advantage of the lonely mountain's strategic location, resources, and massive piles of gold. Azog, the leader of multiple orc armies, has a special bloodlust for Thorin Oakenshield. Amidst all the craziness, Bilbo Baggins attempts to be the best burglar he can be, as he has pledged his life to Thorin's cause. And in the backdrop of these epic events, leaders Gandalf the Grey, the Lady Galadriel, and their friends discover the Necromancer is alive and making a threatening comeback, ready to reclaim all his power and conquer Middle-earth. All right. And, uh, and, you know, for the most part, I think everybody would already know that that's what this movie is going to be about, assuming that they know anything about the material or have seen the other two films. But I, I tried to make that as spoiler-free as possible, but I think we all know I couldn't avoid all the spoilers. I, I thought that was fine. Uh, I mean – and it's it's a well-known story. Like, I, I knew what the story was before I went in, so. Well, I didn't know some of the things that would happen. Mm, okay. Uh, okay, sure. I mean, <laughs> sure, I, I didn't know all the details necessarily. And, and, and the thing is, like, I don't even know what has deviated from the book necessarily. I know some things that have just because I know what was supposed to happen in the book. And I know some things because my wife has told me. 
Uh, and there's some things that I don't know what is deviated from the book, but in general, I, I think it's fine. And I, I think we all know that at the beginning of the film, uh, Smaug is going to die. Like that's, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> um, you know what I'm surprised we didn't see guys. What I didn't realize though was who was going to kill him. Oh, well, I knew that too. I, I, I could have told oh. you that whenever, whenever Bard in the last film was talking about the black arrows, I knew it was going to be him to kill Smaug. But that, yeah, uh, they they foreshadowed that pretty heavily with you know the close up of the weak spot on yeah. Smog's body and the <laughs> the shots of the arrows and the talk about the arrows and it was everything but like a neon sign saying this is how Smog will die. In well, the next I mean, movie. Peter Jackson himself wears a neon sign that says there is no subtlety here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, um, you know, what I'm surprised we didn't see in this film. What's that? We did not. I, I was. I was so certain. I would have bet you a lot of money, and I would have lost. That I, I would. I would be broke if I had. That we would have seen the eye at the end of this. At the end of the film, like like in some fashion, we would have been like the eye in the tower, and and like you know, saying, "Oh, we're leading into the next. You know, the 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 first trilogy, but the next trilogy." You know, I, I was really shocked of all the setup and foreshadowing they did with Sauron that we didn't get that at, in any fashion. There was nothing about Sauron. I think that would end. have been a horrible idea, though. Oh, maybe. Although I think that would have been a better better than what we actually got. But it, you know, than what some of the other things that we got. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll get into it in just a minute. But uh, I, I would disagree with that notion. Okay. I'm just surprised we didn't get it. That's all. I, I, I don't think the eye belonged in this film, but the eye did come up in the movie. Yes. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't think we, I mean, it, the, the character design of Sauron used imagery that looked like the eye to foreshadow it or whatever, but we didn't specifically see it. That's, that's all I'm saying. And it wasn't up in the, in the tower and, and everything. Um, I, I, I've had to wonder why this film is called the Hobbit. Um, particularly this installment of this third installment, it barely features Bilbo. Um, it should have been called Middle Earth before Sauron's return. I mean, <laughs> am I wrong? Or it might have also been called The Hobbit's Day Off. I, I think I think Bilbo's in it a reasonable amount, but to me, he's one of like four co-leads in this movie, which you know makes the title of a Hobbit a little bit deceptive. But you've got him, you've got the Bard, you've got Thorin, and um, how do you pronounce Lee Pace's character's name? Thranduil? Th- Thranduil? Th- yeah. Something like that. The four of them essentially form the sort of four central characters of this movie, and I'd say they roughly get equal time and attention. Uh, and there are a bunch of characters in this movie, as you noted, with that cast list. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and those and, were, I mean, I'm not, I was, you know, you might think I was reading off minor parts, but these are all supposed to be, you know, featured parts. Th- that's, that's true, but it's also, um, it's also not because the dwarves, you know, you have two or three of them that have something to do in this movie, but most of the dwarves just kind of hang around in the background uh, for a lot of this film. You see them, but they don't really get significant dialogue. And likewise, you know, you were talking about Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving, they're big stars and everything, but they're really in the movie for about a minute or two each. And that's, yeah. you know, the end of it. So you're saying they have about as much screen time as, as Bilbo. <laughs> no, Bilbo had, Bilbo had a reasonable amount of screen time I felt you know he he wasn't the central focus yeah. to the degree he was in the other movies but for a movie called The Hobbit you know there, there was less Hobbit than you would expect yeah. for a movie called The Hobbit yeah but pl- the, the thing that redeemed that for me was that Bilbo was pretty well front and center for like the last 20 minutes of the movie as the whole thing was winding down and I felt like the movie really kind of returned to its 
central focus. Yeah, that's true. That's Along true. the lines of what you're saying, though, TJ, I think that the Hobbit didn't have much of a role to play. He was more of a casual observer and just a helping hand in passing every now and then. The differ- A huge difference between a character like him and a character like Frodo or even Samwise was that uh, some Hobbits in other stories, they actually had a major role to play come the third film. And that's the thing about Bilbo, right? Is that he he has a you know some messenger boy like roles to play in this film, and then he gets to go home with a big p- uh, pile of gold. So <laughs> it's not like he actually takes a uh, a leading role, and that's that's probably what you're thinking of. Because I actually noticed he got a lot of screen time making uh, grunt. Uh, ex- uh, you know noises and shrugging expressions and and, and moving you know, his mouth from like, side to side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he didn't like he didn't even know what to do with himself on screen because he's just the hobbit that's standing idly by. Well, he's a Harry Potter hero. <laughs> he's very very much like somebody like Harry Potter who just sort of, you know, wanders through his own story without playing a terribly active role most of the time. Every now and then there will be a big moment where he'll have to make a crucial decision or he'll go off on some little adventure of his own, but for the most part he just kind of observes while important people do important things around him. I would not classify Harry Potter like that at all, but it's, it's that's fine. It's true for a, a lot of situations. He Harry Potter's more proactive than than Bilbo, but not to a huge degree. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it it's different though because you're 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 seeing from Harry's perspective almost all the time even though stuff is happening around him. It's all, whereas Bilbo like was absent from a lot of the film. It was just yeah. weird, that's all. Um yeah, so I mean, there was only a couple other opening statement kind of things that I wanted to say, and and those are the first two. And and then this one is um, that I, I just don't find the Hobbit films in general. Not not all, there. There are some parts of the Hobbit films that are fantastically, you know, wonderful and grandiose and visually stunning. And but in general, I don't find them as visually engaging or rich as Lord of the Rings. And and I find that to be very strange since the budgets are bigger and the technology has come so far since 2000, you know, the early 2000s when Lord of the Rings was made. I, it's just a very weird thing to consider. And and I think that it I don't know. I just don't know what's going on there. Do you think that that has a lot to do with maybe the locations and the characters you see unfolding in the, these films because there's ultimately less um like interesting picturesque locations. It seems like there are less anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an over, I think it's maybe partly that, but, but I mean, there, there were certainly some stunning shots, you know, especially in the desolation of Smaug, when you were looking at the mountains from afar and you had the, the big fields and the big sweeping shots and, and some of those were stunning. Yes. Although that some of them felt overwrought, some of them felt way too enhanced with CGI. And I think that's primarily maybe what I'm feeling. I, I've had a hard time putting my finger on it exactly, but I think what I'm feeling is an over-reliance on CGI and it just feels a little too, crisp and clean sometimes and a little too painted and uh, you know and, and then other times it just feels not quite right and i don't know uh that's that's kind of what i'm feeling about it though i agree with that uh, lord of the rings had the balance down a lot better between the cgi and uh you know real life material there was more location shooting i feel like in mm-hmm. lord of the rings than there has been in the hobbit movies and it's weird because there are certain elements, and I mean, we've talked about this before, but like Smaug and Gollum and other things that yeah. just look amazing, as yes. good as any other CGI out there. And then there's stuff that just looks weirdly video gamey uh, that Azog. pops up, you know, like Azog yes. or some of the battle sequences that just look weirdly phony. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know what happened, but they didn't strike that balance this time around, and that is one of the disappointments of the series is that it just doesn't look as rich and magnificent and convincing as you want it to. Yeah. Yep. That's at least uh, not consistently. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, let's let's dive into unless you guys have any other statements you'd like to make before we get started, really, in our likes and dislikes. Uh, is there anything? Okay, so the Hobbit film, third film. Uh, hmm. I, I just gotta say it now. I don't mean to be controversial. I'm just speaking from my personal opinion, and I really do not expect this to equate to the opinions of Clark or TJ, but for everybody's benefit, for what it is worth, I honestly, though I'm not as nearly as satisfied with the Hobbit trilogy as I was with the Lord of the Rings. And I am an avid fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm not actually disappointed with this trilogy, except for a couple of things that annoy me about the production values. Um, ultimately I like Peter Jackson's Hobbit more than I like Tolkien's. And the reason for it, sacrilege, hey, burn him at the stake, bring the torches. Uh, uh, yes, I am ruining your childhoods, guys, <laughs> but I am talking about my adulthood here. And what I'm referring to is I never read this stupid book. All I care about is the Lord of the Rings films. Like those are the things I want to check out again and again. And the Hobbit films are great backstory uh, material that complements the Lord of the Rings films. I would not want to go back and read the Hobbit book when I want to enjoy and revisit Middle Earth. I'd much rather watch the films. So if I had a toss up between you may have Tolkien's books or you may have Peter Jackson's films, I would take Peter Jackson's any day. I just have to get that out of the way. I'm not saying I'm giving this like 5.10 stars. I'm just saying... (laughs) <laughs> for what it is worth i'm i'm actually still a fan of the hobbit films though less so than i am of the lord of the rings films clark do we still burn heretics at the stake uh we should no <laughs> um, it's, it's there's a part of me that understands where joe is coming from because if i'm being honest with myself i'm gonna go back and watch these movies more often than i'm gonna go back and reread the books but given the choice uh to only be permitted access to one or the other, I think I probably would choose the books, just knowing um, that that's where the purest incarnation of this story lies and that it's something so, you know, culturally significant. The movies are too. But I, I don't know. I feel like sort of planting that flag first and being the purest, most cohesive version of this story uh, prevents me from actually saying I would take the movies over it, even though I will probably spend more time with them. Mm. Well, and I just want to add, Joe, that I'm not coming at this from a purist perspective or from a the Tolkien is better perspective. I, I haven't fully, you know, like I said, I've only read a few chapters of The Hobbit and, and even less of Lord of the Rings. So that's not my perspective at all. I feel like I'm purely evaluating these things purely on their own merits. And I find them to be lacking, these three films. Okay. Well, we 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 all know how you feel about you know, a lot of movies, TJ. So I'm just going to leave my comment at that. Okay. All right, so um, likes and dislikes. Let's start with the the things that we liked about this film. Uh, my list is a little bit short. This is my least preferred of the three films, actually. Um, mm. And uh, my my I actually uh, somewhat facetiously put at the top of my list. There won't be and probably can't be any more of these films. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that that was that was the top of my list. You don't you don't see the Silmarillions parts one through twenty coming out. <laughs> Uh, 
I well, I don't. They don't have the rights. The, the film rights. The film rights aren't there, so they can't do uh, it. So you just, just a matter of time. Joe, you're the most favorable. Why don't you Why don't you tell us what you liked about this film? Yeah, this was my f- most favorite of the three films. Um, the first one being my second most favorite of the Hobbit films. And um, I guess it was just the overall tonality of um, I was surprised by some of the the somewhat satisfying conclusions for several of the characters. I didn't expect them to pan out as well as they did, and they did better. <laughs> um, one character that I was actually really hoping for would uh, really just grab my attention and I, that I would be enthralled by was Thranduil. I, uh, I liked his character in the books, uh, you know, material from what I've read and what have you. I mean, like I, like I said, I haven't read the Hobbit, but I'm f- very familiar with the character and, um, I thought he was an intriguing character. I was actually less satisfied with him in this film, but as a whole, I was surprised by how many of the characters had a decent fulfillment and uh, fewer people died than I was expecting too. <laughs> um, I, I was happy about that. And, uh, what can we say? We got a lot of uh, over-the-top action sequences. Sometimes they were a bit uh, uh, like, what are you thinking there, uh, Jackson? Uh, uh, popping up out of the ice, really? Okay, but <laughs> besides that kind of moment here and there, I actually thought that the action sequences were rather fulfilling in this film. Uh, one of my biggest complaints of the trilogy was the huge showdown with Smaug in the second film because he gets gold plated and he just bursts right out of it. Like it's absolutely nothing. And I think that that's a, that's way that's asking for too much. For, um, for instance, like we have really hot liquid gold seeping into his, uh, his open wound on his stomach and uh, that didn't affect him at all. Um, that is just one of the things I didn't be- take. I didn't think was very believable in the first, uh, that film. Yeah, there's a lot of things that weren't believable. Yeah, I thought that the effectiveness of the action sequences in this film as a whole was far superior because just the way that they were paced, the little details, how things unfolded were, um, I guess, like uh, built my anticipation a lot better. And I thought were more interesting, intriguing concepts, um, better twists, even in the small in the smallest of actions. Um, I was rooting for the heroes more, more or less, whereas in the first two Hobbit films when action sequences were going on, I was disturbed by just how re- other, utterly ridiculous there were moments of time where the, the good guys should clearly have all just died, but somehow they managed to escape very ridiculous uh, scenarios. Um, so as a whole, yeah, I, I mean like when it, the whole movie was dubbed the Battle of the Five Armies, I was – afraid of the worst. I was thinking, okay, Jackson is just going to give us two hours of nonstop battle stuff. And he almost did that. But even so I was satisfied. I, I I enjoyed the battle whatnot uh, for the most part. Hmm. I I did too. And I really felt like there was almost less action than I was anticipating, given that the movie is called the battle of five armies. Uh, one of the things I loved is the um, sort of focused structure of this movie in contrast to its predecessors. Uh, the two previous Hobbit movies are very kind of rambling, episodic affairs, and that works for what they're trying to do. But you go from sort of one section to the next section to the next section to the next section in each movie. It almost feels like, you know, little 15 to 20 minute episodes. Uh, this movie is really one big connected thing 
you've got the first half, which is sort of the moving the chess pieces around the board and setting everything up. And then you've got the second half, which is where everything explodes and the battle erupts. But even when the battle erupts, one of the things I thought was great was that Peter Jackson doesn't just throw uh, thousands and thousands of CGI hordes at each other. He, as often as possible, whenever he gets the opportunity, tries to turn this battle into something intimate by uh, focusing on just a small handful of characters in specific situations that we care about uh, trying to get out of a difficult situation. And I thought that approach was rather effective because more often than not, you know, we're watching these these small-scale sort of, I won't quite call them Shakespearean, but these, these little dramas, you know, playing out uh, with this vast war taking place as a backdrop. And I thought that was a, a nifty approach, and it certainly differentiated it from, say, the much more just kind of... M- consistently massive battle at the end of uh, return of the king yeah all right so um the, the very few things that i did enjoy about this film uh one of them was howard shore's music which was uh really fantastic um i i've i, I found that to be true of all of his music for the hobbit series where he's really built well on what he did with lord of the rings in in almost kind of backtracking and then leading into it and 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 the the appropriate reuse of themes, um, but not not like beating you over the head with it. Um, sometimes you you watch a sequel or a, a prequel and you think why why are we hearing all this exact same music? I, you know, I uh, it just you know it 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 felt appropriate when whenever he did it. And and the music to me has been the best part about uh, the Hobbit trilogy. In fact, well you know when when we first started talking about the Hobbit trilogy coming out i thought oh great we're going to get some wonderful more wonderful howard shore uh scores of these films and and indeed we we truly have and uh, i was very impressed by the music in this film probably the best part of the film in my estimation i was definitely happy with the music i was happy with the music as well um it's probably the most immediately accessible score of the 3 uh just in terms of just like kind of instantly satisfying themes and uh, some really gratifying action music in the second half of the movie. But all three of these really are remarkable works and uh, very deep, intricate works that you discover new things in each time you revisit them and just uh, realize what a complex and perfectly woven tapestry Howard Shore has put together. Uh, He certainly hasn't lost his craft. Uh, Whatever else anyone may feel about the Hobbit series, Howard Shore's contributions have been excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree. Um, let's see. The other things on my list here are um, I really, really, really enjoyed uh, the conversation between Balin and Bilbo, where their words were saying one thing, but they were communicating things with their eyes. It was just fantastic acting. You know, it was it, well the best thing in would be if that Arkenstone were to stay lost. You know, that would be the best thing for him. You know, and, and just so much was happening there in that scene between uh between Martin Freeman and the actor that played Balin. Forgive me, I don't don't actually know his uh his name, but uh there there was a lot going on in that scene. My wife actually also commented on that scene and she, you know, normally doesn't necessarily pick up on the same things that I do, but she really she was like, that was such a fantastic scene. And in general, I mean that kind of leads into another thing that I mean just, you know, uh, there is there are some great actors in this film. Martin Freeman being you know top notch, uh, just really uh, I I was I really had to wonder when the when the casting announcement came that Martin Freeman was going to be playing Bilbo. Well, can he do Bilbo the way Ian Holm did for us in in the Lord of the Rings? And in fact, I like Martin Freeman better at this point. 
Um, and I know, you know, Ian Holm is, is older and maybe just didn't, you know, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I like Martin Freeman better. That's, that's all I'm saying. So a lot of fantastic, uh, work there. And one thing I liked about Bilbo's characterization was that unlike some most of the other, uh, hobbits and, uh, I guess the characters in general in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Bilbo for a little guy, he's, he's not really cowardly. Not not when it comes down to this, the culmination of his entire outrageous adventure. He's not wimpy and he's not childish. He wants to play his part and he doesn't struggle to find that courage he needs. He he also acknowledges his limits, which is something that I think some of the other characters, especially in Lord of the Rings, you know, had a difficulty defining. And it would have, uh, you know, and sometimes you just cringe when you see these characters making huge mistakes like, you know, you really shouldn't be going out there into battle. You don't have to prove anything. Mm. Well, you know, for a little guy, for a guy who has been untested and inexperienced, Bilbo has it figured out pretty well. Like he knows when he just needs to stay put and stay behind that he'd be more effective being the burglar that he is. I agree with you about Martin Freeman's performance. I, I really do like Ian Holmes' work in the Lord of the Rings films and you know his brief work in the Hobbit movies, but Martin Freeman has really just made this character his own. And uh, you know, like Howard Shore, an element who's just been kind of consistently great across this whole trilogy, regardless of the ups and downs of the movies. Yeah, for sure. Um, the final thing that I have on my list, I, I have no doubt, I, I sat down and tried to compile this list. I have no doubt that more will come up because there there were a lot of things that I did enjoy about this film. Don't don't let my harsh demeanor really get you guys down. Uh, it's it's certainly a film worth watching. But um, the final thing that I don't that I have on my list, and hopefully more will come up as you guys talk. But um, there were some very genuinely moving moments in this film. Uh, probably more so than the other two films, um, and and that's probably typical. And as you come into the third act of a of a single film, and that's kind of what you're looking at with this very long trilogy, as uh, you got basically Act One, Act Two, and Act Three, right? Well, so it, I suppose that's typical in a way, but it, it was some genuinely moving moments. Uh, Tariel and uh, her final scene with Feely was unexpectedly moving for me. I. I I was expecting them to do something like that, and I was like, that's just not going to work for me because the whole thing with Tariel is weird, and Tariel and Feely making the weird jokes about their, you know, relationship and stuff, and and I just, you know, n- none of that was working for me, and yet when it came to the final scene, uh, it was quite apparent uh, that Peter Jackson remembered how to do what he did at the end of Return of the King uh, and, and kind of move us in, in, in ways uh, so I, I found that to be good. Uh, the Bilbo scene with Thorin was was very 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 good. Um, mm. uh, I, I still with the acorn. Uh, did that involve the last scene involve the acorn? I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I thought you oh, were talking yeah, about yeah, a different yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, but no. I love, I love the scene of the acorn. <laughs> uh, well, that's true too. That was good. But I was I was specifically he did actually talk about <laughs> taking and planting that acorn when when he got home. So yeah, that works too. Um, okay. Well, both both scenes with the acorn then. Yes, yes. Um, I still probably would not have put Tariel or Legolas in these films if I had a choice, but uh, I do have to say that that uh, Tariel and Feely uh, was a pretty good scene. I have to agree with you on the, these notes, TJ. You know, oftentimes you say you get a little misty eyed. <laughs> uh, in this one, I just turned on the waterworks. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I was gushing for a few minutes. Interesting. And I didn't expect it to go that far. Especially for the first half of the film, I just didn't feel that much, yeah, engrossed. Yeah, I have to say, I want to go back to something you said, Clark, uh, and I saw you mention this on Twitter too, where you talked about that like the first part of the film was the moving of the chess pieces, and 
And what was it you said about the second part of the film that it was, um, uh, what were you saying about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the big, it's, it's the battle of five armies basically. Yeah. Uh, you I, know, uh, a great big series of action scenes. I really didn't feel the chess pieces moving around that much in the first part of the film. I, I really didn't feel that. And maybe that's mm. just me, but I, I, it wasn't working for me. Um, it, it felt very kind of dull and slow and, I mean, there were some things being set up for sure. Um, but, but for instance, like, I really felt like the, um, the dragon sickness, this sort of bang, we were just slapped with it. Like, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, Thorin is a different elf, uh, a dwarf than he was before. Like, it, it didn't, it wasn't gradual. It wasn't moving the chess pieces into place. All of a sudden, just because the script called for it, he has dragon sickness and and he's hoarding the gold and he's not going to help anybody and he's not going to honor his bargains and he doesn't value anything or anybody and it just it just sort of happened and i can't speak to whether that's the way it worked in the book but i just was like what is going on here well see i would disagree with that because i think this was established in the desolation of smog i think the dragon sickness or whatever we want to call the dragon sickness started overtaking him as he approached um, the mountain. Uh, I think by the end of the desolation of Smog, he had been pretty well consumed by his greed mm. and by his lust for power. And the closer he got to that gold and the closer he got to regaining uh, that power that had been stripped from his people, uh, the more that kind of consumed him and stripped away the good man that he fundamentally was. And I think I feel like the seeds of that were, were pretty well set up in the second half of the desolation of smoke, but uh, it, it certainly accelerates uh, in this movie. Well, um, while, while we're here, I, I'm kind of dipping into my dislikes, but I, and I want to let you guys get in some more likes, but I, I do, while we're here, it just <laughs> makes sense to go ahead and say, I, yeah, I, I didn't buy it, but I really didn't buy uh, that the the other dwarves just sort of let him be stupid and let him confine that. Like I, he's he's one, and they're like twelve. Like um, at this point, you know, and they're trying. He's trying to kill Bilbo, and they're just standing around. And it's like, no, you know what? Um, no, I'm just gonna say no. I'm, I'm we're we're twelve guys, and we're gonna make you. We're gonna do what we need to do. <laughs> I just didn't buy it. I, I don't mean to become an apologist for this movie. <laughs> um, you already are, so go ahead. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, f- I feel like I feel like that was kind of covered too, though, and in a way that convinced me the dwarven people uh, and the way their society works. Um, th- there's a certain sort of code of loyalty there that I think trumps all. And even though it's clear that they all disagree with what Thorin is doing, it's clear that they all can't stand it. It's clear that they would all rather be doing something different. He is their king, and. Uh, up till a certain breaking point and maybe beyond that, they are going to remain loyal to him because they have pledged that vow to do so. Mm. And uh, they are going to to wait for him to return to his senses and hope that he does and uh, refuse to betray him, even if it would ultimately be helping him during this time, uh, which is why I think, you know, um, in that scene with Balin that, that he nudges Frodo and the direction that he does where he's like, I really think, you know, he's subtly saying, I think you should do this. I can't do this because of my loyalty to him. And, but you can, you're a hobbit. You're not part of this to the same degree. Do this, please. <laughs> you know, is the sort of subtext there. You know, there's that scene too, where 
they're all sitting inside the fortress and they're sort of stewing around in there and they're so mad. And they're like, this feels wrong. I don't want to be in here while all of the other dwarves are out there on the battlefield. Uh, but as mad as they are about it, they stay there because that's, you know, what their king at that moment desires of them. And they're so relieved and so happy when he changes his mind on that. And they, you know, of course, gladly follow him into battle. All right, so do you guys have some other likes that you would like to uh, – see what I did there? The likes that you would like to uh, throw out and, and put out and, and, and kind of counteract all the negativity that I'm about to unleash on you guys. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you go ahead and do that? If you- oh, dear. I have my dislikes too. Don't, uh, don't take it wrong. By, and by far, I feel like it's a good wrap-up for – the Martin Freeman version of the Hobbit. I want to say that loosely because if you, if you spend too much time looking at any of the details, it starts to crumble under your feet. But if, if I, if I can say one thing going for Peter Jackson, it's not like he George Lucas us with this trilogy. Mm. He didn't have a horrible movie. I was going to make that comparison. Horrible movie followed up by a not so great movie. I was going to ask you guys if we're seeing the George Lucasification of Peter Jackson. It could be that Peter Jackson's abilities are waning. Earlier in the show, I was going to make the comparison to George Lucas, um, but in a different way. You know, TJ, you were talking about Peter Jackson's quote about how he's, you know, tired of big blockbusters dominating everything. And of course, Mm -hmm. there is a bit of irony in that with the Hobbit movies and Lord of the Rings movies being some of the biggest blockbusters of all. But I think he shares something in common with George Lucas there and that they're both guys who have spent most of their careers making really big, huge blockbusters, but who fundamentally in their heart of hearts want to be making uh, small independent movies and that that's what their true loyalty is to. Uh, mm. Not that they you know always live up to their sort of core values, but George Lucas talked for so many years about you know, what I really want to be doing is making my own small little personal movies, even though he has yet to get around to doing that. And Peter Jackson, too, all throughout the Hobbit series. And indeed, after he finished King Kong, the thing he's been saying is, I want to go make little small personal movies back in New Zealand and, uh, you know, get away from all of this. And I really believe that both of them mean that. But um, business and commerce and life being what it is, they've kind of gotten sucked back into these things that will ultimately define them, these giant franchises. Mm. So I'm not saying that Peter Jackson isn't being a tad hypocritical there, but just that I also think that he's being honest too, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I buy it, but yeah, it makes sense. But you know me, I'm, I'm stubborn. I'm going to cling to what I think the, <laughs> the problem is. So, mm-hmm. Joe, were you? Uh, did you have some more thoughts you wanted to lay out there? Uh, okay, well, for one thing that uh, a lot of the critics have pointed out about Lord of the Rings is that there are one or two side characters that they're just not very happy with. Uh, one thing that I think this trilogy has going for it is that there aren't those especially annoying, troublesome characters that just grate on your nerves quite so much. And perhaps I'm um, speaking from personal experience, and I just haven't heard any other critics say one way or the other about other about characters in the Hobbit uh, films. Maybe they do feel that way about some character. Um, but as far as like all of the dwarves, it would have been so easy for one or two of them to come across as just downright annoying and poorly executed. 
or for the human race to just be annoying or for, uh, you know, some of these uh, snobbish elves to come off the wrong way. I think that if there are any characters that um, lack merit on screen and in their screen time, it was probably the uh, characterization of Thranduil and then that um, that horrible guy with the hunchback called Alfred. I just didn't like him at all. He was given too much screen time. But that being said, there was far less of these uh, uh, like annoying little tra- character traits that grate on the audience's nerves. I think our problems have more to do with the story's execution than on character's execution. That being said, one of the things I really enjoyed about this film was how characters were portrayed. And even the... Um, even the things I wasn't so sure about knowing things that like uh, the necromancer and Galadriel and Elrond were largely Peter Jackson and the studios uh, inserts into this film trilogy. I was expecting not to like them so much appearances of Saruman duking it out with the, the, what was it called? The, the Nazgul, the ring rates. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought that I, that those things would not work out. Especially because I I like how they were the those characters like Galadriel and Elrond and Saruman were characterized in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but for the most part, I was very satisfied with how characters were treated, and uh, especially in this film of the three Hobbit films. All right, guys, are you guys ready for me to go on my tirade? Well, can can I throw in a like or two before? Yes, please, please. I, I don't want this podcast to become the the negative podcast. Well, I, I do. I'll just limit it to really for now uh, to one big like because this is really the biggest one for me. Um, I loved the ending of this movie, and by the ending, mm. I mean like the final twenty twenty five minutes or so, um, because it really captured something I wasn't expecting this movie to capture at all, which is this sort of quiet tenderness that I really haven't seen since um, since the Lord of the Rings. It was something really beautiful the way. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in this whole series is that scene with Bilbo and Gandalf sort of in the wake of this huge battle, just sitting there and Gandalf's uh, preparing his pipe and they don't say a word to each other, but there's just so much uh, sort of unspoken connection between those two characters Mm -hmm. at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I love the way too, that it resolves uh, being both an adaptation of the Hobbit and being a tie into the Lord of the Rings series and being an adaptation of the Hobbit, it does have, you know, that triumphant happy ending where Bo- Bilbo prevails and gets to go home and return and has learned some lessons and, you know, uh, gained some treasures and all of this stuff. But, um, it also has an element of sort of bittersweetness to it that sets up Lord of the Rings and that they do, uh, strongly hint at and don't back away from the sort of corruption of Bilbo's heart um, oh, sure. towards the end of this movie, which adds just a tinge of sadness to the whole thing. And it's just so beautifully handled, you know, that, that last scene uh, between Bilbo and Gandalf, when Bilbo sort of blatantly lies to Gandalf about the ring mm-hmm. and having lost it, which, you know, he hasn't. And Gandalf knows that he's lying. <laughs> yeah, of course. And y- you know, there's just that look of that look in Ian McKellen's face where, you know, that he, 
he still loves Bilbo very much and he cares about him very much, but he's hurt that he's lying to him and he knows, you know, what kind of struggles he's going to face in the years ahead because he has held on to this ring. And it's just such a beautifully complex moment. Um, everything, you know, back in the Shire is so wonderfully handled and just kind of the atmosphere of that place. I don't know. It's just sort of took me by surprise how vibrantly that was captured and how right it felt. Uh, I don't suppose it should, but it really did. And, um, yeah, you know, and the the quick segue back to Ian Holm at the end worked really beautifully. That That last 20 minutes was pretty much, you know, flawless in my book. And it really, really sold me on this movie. I still think Desolation of Smog is the best of the three. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- those closing moments brought this one up a lot more than I was expecting it to. Yeah, I, and I would have to agree with that. I, I felt like if they could have cut some out, some of that out of the middle, cut some of the senseless battle stuff out, and, and there, there was a point in time where I was like, the, the, I, can't, I literally can't tell who's winning the battle, what's going on, where it's going, what's happening. Uh, there's a lot, there's too much, you know, there's there's digital troops destroying digital troops, and I'm not invested in this at all. And then then you got into the more personal stuff, and then, you you know, the wrap-up, and that, that all felt much better to me. And, and so I would have to generally agree with what you're saying there. So hey, we we do we do see some things alike here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I am going to start unloading my wheelbarrow now, guys. Um, uh, here's my first note: the death of Smaug feels like it belongs in the previous film. Uh, it, it feels completely detached from what's going on in this film. Um, it it it's just sort of thrown in there. It's like so the the uh, the the way the previous film ended was with Smaug flying toward the city. I am fire. I am death, you know? And it's like, well, so so we're going to focus a lot on Smaug in the next film. And then he sort of dispatched pretty quickly within the first 15 minutes of the film, which I, you know, if it had been part of the previous film would have been fine. Like he, you know, he had this battle, he went in there and then that's the end of Smaug's story. It really felt weird to carry it over into this film. And I understand the problems with that from a dramatic perspective, but I think this just underscores the whole issue with having split this this movie into so many parts. It's it's weird to find your in and your out points, and and th- it just felt very strange. Um, so that that would be a complaint of mine. Uh, would you guys like to comment on that? I have to agree. That was something that did, like felt awkward and uncomfortable, or especially when it, when it happens so early in the film without like a, uh, I guess. Um, uh, <sighs> Like, I'm glad that they didn't overly extend it, though. That's the thing. Like, if if that's if they needed to get rid of Smog, uh, basically in the the early stages of this film, then I'm glad that they didn't overextend him and try to you know hold him out for a little bit more. Um, they, they got rid of him, you know, a little bit early, but leastways how they got rid of him felt like it was uh satisfactory. I, I especially appreciated uh, Bard. I thought that his characterization was very well done in this film. And so when he actually pulls it off, I I was rather impressed. And then I was like, okay, well, I should note that I need to root for this guy for the rest of the film. Oh, I should definitely note that uh, Bard is certainly one of my favorite characters. I, I, I very much like Bard. Um, and I'm not, I wasn't in, in my criticism here. I wasn't calling for more Smaug. I'm just saying that the, the awkwardness is in, in the cut, uh, you know, in the split of the movies. That's where the awkwardness lies. And I know the dramatic tension of that is a little weird to balance, but I felt like it was, it was just weird to, to split the movie like that. Um, I don't know, Clark, what do you, what do you, what, what rebuttal do you have for me? 
No, I actually don't have a rebuttal for you on this one. I agree with you completely. Um, the end of the movie was this big dramatic moment, and, you, and you're right. I thought it was a great beat to end Desolation of Smog on that, what have we done? And it's it's just so dramatic. And right. you know that this big dragon attack is coming, and they've unleashed Pandora's box here. And it's just so uh, underwhelming, the way it's presented in this movie. Uh, Smog kind of flies around and burns a few things and then gives a James Bond villain monologue and dies. <laughs> um, and, you know... <laughs> I, I found it pretty underwhelming and disappointing. Uh, Smog was such an imposing presence at the end of the last movie, and I really didn't feel that at any point in this one. Uh, it was he, he just seemed more generic somehow and uh, was gone so quickly that he didn't really have time to make an impression. And I understand why, but um, really this is one of the consequences of stretching this thing out into three movies. Mm-hmm. Originally, uh, Smog's death, was supposed to happen around the midway point of right. the second movie. Right. But uh, obviously things changed and they decided they needed more money. And this is one of the narrative consequences <laughs> of that is you have a really awkward placement of a big dramatic moment. Right. I, I like that they decided they needed more money. That's good. Um, I'll say, too, that uh, I'm sad that uh, Stephen Fry's character and not Alfred's character was the one that got killed. Yeah, Stephen Fry was certainly much more uh, comically uh, adept, if, or, or you know, but the better comedian than than Alfred. Like Alfred was more of the it was more of the uh, the slimy character, whereas whereas Stephen Fry's character was slimy, but more m- more just funny, you know, more just stupid. Right. Uh, that that would have been a much better choice. Yeah, a certainly much more compelling character. And Alfred was, you know, Joe was talking about how there are no characters in this series comparable to, you know, Jar Jar Binks. But Alfred comes close. <laughs> he does he's, come close. <laughs> he's pretty obnoxious at times. And especially the way, like, he keeps being so blatantly slimy and evil. And, like, he, everybody else in the movie keeps giving him chances over and over again. Like, Bard knows what a terrible person he is. And he's like, hey, why don't you be my right-hand man now, you terrible creep? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, yeah. And I really didn't buy him sticking around as long as he did. Yeah, but of course they 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 would have. I mean, it wouldn't have worked to keep Stephen Fry alive because Bard had to step into the role, you know, of of the the king. And right, he so, had to be the leader. Right. So I, I do I I get it from that perspective, but it makes me sad from a you know characters I enjoy watching perspective. Yeah. All right, using Bane to aim the bow. Uh, I, I literally laughed out loud. Like, like that just doesn't work. It, there's no way in any, even in this fanciful world where that works. The, you know, when he shot the bow, the fletching would have cut his neck wide open. And, and even if it didn't, um, that the snap of that bowstring in his face would have done some pretty serious damage. <laughs> like, I didn't buy that for one second. N- none of that worked for me. That was crazy. Yeah, I thought that that was disturbing. That, that's a moment that would have worked if the characters had been um, Jack Sparrow and Will Turner. <laughs> well, we had one of those characters in this film anyway. Right. But uh, in, in the reality of an action movie like that, that's a little more kind of over the top. It might have it might have worked. But here, it, it, you're right. It did feel kind of silly. Yeah. Joe, any rebuttal for me? No, I have to kind of agree. When I when I saw that unfolding, I was like, okay, if uh, Bard thinks that's going to work, okay, but that doesn't look <laughs> – what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I had that same feeling until – I guess uh, I was very quickly distracted by the fact that it actually worked when 
it actually did hit smog and he was dying. I was like, Oh really? Holy cow. And then like, I was already, I'd already forgotten exactly what had happened seconds earlier. Yeah. All right. Next bullet point. Uh, I probably shouldn't tell the listeners that I have a bullet point list here. That makes it more boring or something, but I, I did. I have notes. I have notes. Um, so I'm, I'm an editor, uh, both film and, and audio. And, uh, you know, so I notice things about editing, the editing at times in this film felt really choppy. There was, there was a lot of times I'm like, what, what was that? What just happened? That was really jarring. I, I don't understand what happened here. Uh, did, did anybody else feel that at times? Not some of it was edited well, but some of it was just really choppy. No, I have to agree. That was actually something I put down in my notes uh, that, yes, it, it lacked a little bit of cohesion because of the choppiness between moment to moment. It felt like uh, to the greater whole uh, that some scenes were very dense while others were just very hurried and very shallow. Uh, things that I would have liked to have unfolded uh, more carefully with more consideration. The, the, for instance, the Battle of the Five Armies is incredibly detailed as it follows the essential events of a few characters. But then – for others, they just seem randomly tossed in in strange edit points. Yeah, I mean, there's that for sure. And, and I, but, but what I'm talking about also encompasses more. Like, like uh, we would call them in the biz jump cuts because they don't cut ne- these two scenes. Literally, these two frames do not cut one to the other. They feel jumpy. They feel cutty. Uh, and, and you can use that sometimes to achieve certain effects, but in this, in, in, in a storytelling setting, you very rarely use jump cuts to tell your story because they're jarring. They're, they're disconcerting. You might use, uh, like, you'll notice a lot of times jumps, jump cuts are used in a scene where they're trying to show somebody is like going mad or crazy or, or, you know, they're, they're, they're jittering the camera and they're doing these weird effects and you'll cut to different jump points where maybe you're different zoom levels or just, you know, or he's at different points in the frame or it's obviously there's time elapsed. Those are the sorts of things that jump cuts work well for. Um, but, but there was a lot of, in this film, jump cuts that just felt like, what in the world? That didn't make any sense. I don't understand what happened. And it was really, I was just trying to figure out, like, if normal people would notice it or if only I was noticing it because I'm an editor. I, it, but it just felt very jarring. Clark, did you notice anything like that? Yeah, um, it, it struck me more, actually, during some of the earlier sequences in the movie than it did during a lot of the battle stretches. Yes, I, I would agree with that, actually, yes. But yeah, it, it again, another thing that, you know, sometimes is very, very good, but not as consistently as you would like, much like the visual effects. And uh, I don't know, with this with this whole series, much as I've enjoyed it, it feels like the Peter Jackson who gave us Lord of the Rings only shows up, you know, 50% of the time. Yeah, what happened to that, you know, super detail-oriented, you know, person who gave us Lord of the Rings? Like, it feels like he he really just, he was sort of phoning it in for this. this. Right, and I mean, he, he's still in there. Like, when he when he hits his stride in these movies, you can see it, but it, it's just not that rock-solid consistency that we had before. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Uh, Clark or Joe, would, would one of you care to give us any of the dislikes on your list so that I don't completely dominate the show? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'll go back to something that I don't like is that um, Bilbo Baggins, uh, in relation to the portrayal of what was his name, uh, Ian McKellen in mm-hmm. The Fellowship of the Ring and Beyond. Yes. I felt like. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Bilbo? Most... That would be Ian Holm. Sorry, I, I just realized what you were saying. Thank you. Yeah, I get the two of those Ians mixed up. It's easy to do. Okay, so. Bilbo Baggins, portrayed by Martin Freeman versus Ian Helm, was uh, not very consistent. 
And that was one of the things that I like about the whole of the hobbits. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, if you go back and watch The Fellowship of the Ring, I think you'll see what I'm referring to. We have a very lively individual who seems uh, a little bit eccentric. He's very quick to speak. He uh, he has snap, snap judgment calls. And um, that's the kind of portrayal that we have from Ian Helm. And with Martin Freeman, he just seems more like a normal guy. He he's more casual about everything. He he doesn't seem to uh, to process information the same way, and it was more of a personality difference, not one that you would just expect to be different because this is um, Bilbo fifty years younger or whatever age he's supposed to be. Like, I know there's a huge age discrepancy between the Fellowship of the Ring and the Battle of the Five Armies, but it didn't even feel like this was the same character. Um, that was something that jars me between the Hobbit trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it, bu- it kind of bugs me too, because other characters are very well established and they, the dots are connected extremely well between all six of the films for them. Maybe my love for Martin Freeman's performance is, is making it hard for me to be objective about that. I'm, I'm not seeing the problem. Well, I think, I think it's excused by the narrative a little bit. I, I think, you know, in Fellowship of the Ring, it's very clear that, uh, you know, the ring has altered Bilbo's personality somewhat because he's also uh, angrier and snappier and more jealous and fearful at times, even though that's not really his default personality. Those things are lurking within him and mm-hmm. are maybe have crept to the surface more than they have by right. the end of uh, of this movie. So I think, you know, although some of it can certainly be explained by the fact that we're doing dealing with two different actors and one is young and one is old and they have different approaches to the character, I think there's also an equal part of it that's explained by, you know, what's happened in the years that have passed. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Or maybe that's just me justifying it because I like both of those performances and I don't really yeah. want to. That's a, a decent interpretation. I, I, I can see that. It, it just it didn't occur to me while watching the films. So the idea that it was the ring that had changed him into the man he became in Lord of the Rings just uh, hadn't occurred to me. So I was still taken out of the experience. Because, I mean, like, Legolas is basically Legolas. Gandalf is the same. Uh, so are the elves that appear in all the six films. So I just I was expecting a little bit more consistency for a, a another very important uh, main character. Legolas may be Legolas, but strangely, he looks so much older. And this is supposed to be before. I mean, <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah, what can you say? He's Benjamin Button's elf, or he's the Benjamin Button elf. Is somebody, who, somebody, I saw somebody make that. Like, is this the, oh, it was that Honest trailer, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the Honest trailer. He's like, uh, is, this, is, is Legolas the Benjamin Button elf? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yes. Really, uh, going back to dislikes, well, the biggest one for me wasn't so much um, the storyline, the characterizations, the plot details, the gags, or just the heart and soul of the story so much as Peter Jackson's horrible choice for the frame rate. And that hadn't been a problem when I saw the desolation of smoke and, uh, the first film, what was the subtitle of the first film anyway? Uh, wasn't it? I don't have it up. An unexpected journey. Oh, an unexpected journey. Yeah. Thank you. When I watched those two films, um, I guess I had a different kind of screen and a different kind of, um, projector system. Um, what I saw today was in a ginormous screen uh, that's different from all the others at this theater. And I believe that it had a different kind of projecting system that was giving us the, the real frame rate. So did you actually see – you probably actually saw it at 48 frames per second. Yes, yeah, exactly. And 
I, I guys, it was disgusting. It's awful. The frame rate absolutely destroys the quality of any movie you want to take seriously for two and a half hours. I agree. I mean, 3D is bad enough, <laughs> but if you had to give me one of or the two and I couldn't avoid it, I, I'd take 3D over this 48 frames per sec- second thing any day. I cannot understand why after the first film and the reaction the audience had to it and didn't like it then, that they went on to allow uh, versions of it to be seen in the 48 frames per second in theaters just because it's so it's so nasty it looks cheap it looks like a bad camcorder uh playback absolutely when, whenever the uh whenever the characters are like standing still or they're just making expressions and talking to each other and they're pacing very slowly you don't notice it too much but the moment that there's action sequence there, they look like they're in an old black and white silent motion uh, picture where there's not enough frames and everybody's dancing around, you know, in a bizarre fashion. Yeah, there's a reason why the industry standardized at 24 frames per second is because it looks and, – and, and, you know, there's people that will argue, well, it's because of the – it was cheap. You know, that was the very least amount of frames they could get away with and it still looked real. But I would argue – and and most most cinema, cinema files would argue that it standardized that way and stayed that way because it looks the most the, the best. It, it looks the most natural. Um, there there is a decay rate with twenty four frames per second in the correct shutter speed adjustments that makes it look natural. Um, I I've, I know that I beat this horse to death. I've talked about it on the podcast before. This is my platform on, upon which I run as president of all film companies or whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, it, there is a setting that we use in After Effects when we're, when we're making visual effects. Uh, and, and I'm sure, and I, I happen to know I, people who use much higher end programs. I've taught, you know, I have a friend who's a 3D graphics artist, and they render with motion blur. Why is this? Well, it's because if you don't have motion blur, it looks cheap, it looks, um, it, it looks fake. And motion blur, like if you if you do this experiment again, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this on podcasts before. You take your hand and wave it back and forth at a moderate pace in front of your eyes, and not not trying to follow it, or even if you are trying to follow it, you're going to see something called motion blur. This is what our eyes see in real life, and so when you don't see that, and what happens at 48 frames per second is the motion blur is almost non-existent because it's capturing so many frames a second. Uh, that there is no time for the motion to blur. The shutter, the shutter has to work faster to imprint the image upon the film or the digital, you know, uh, uh, the sensor, whatever you happen to be using. And so there is no time for that image to blur when there's a lot of fast motion, and it looks very fake. It's not a good thing. So that is my pontification and the platform upon which I stand. So um, in short, with 24 frames per second versus 48 frames per second. 48 frames per second may technically, uh, on a purely technical level, be closer to the truth. But the truth feels more like a lie, and the lie feels more accurate. You're capturing more information at 48 frames per second, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It, like, it just doesn't look right because um, you're – it's the interaction with the shutter because the shutter is what exposes the film or the sensor to the light that's passing through the lens. I know this is getting very technical, but um, the, so the shutter can remain open longer at 24 frames per second, thereby letting the image blur a little if it's moving really fast um, because it doesn't have to move to the next frame so quickly. 
and at 48 frames per second, that shutter has to close much more quickly. So, by the way, if you if you film at a higher frame rate, you also have to have more light, by the way. Just FYI, a little something you might need to know about if you're a cinematographer. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a really – it's just really bad. It, it, it's it's just not a good thing. And you can still tell it even at – even if you're viewing the film at 24 frames per second, that film was exposed and shot at 48 frames per second. So you're still going to be able to tell it. I still think even at seeing it at standard 24 frames per second um, – that you're still not it still doesn't look great i don't think um it still could look better if it was shot and truly captured at 24 frames per second i do hope to have a better experience though when i watch it at home maybe we'll see i uh i've I've watched bits and pieces of the first one we actually have that blu-ray uh we don't have the other one yet and obviously this one's not out yet but uh it's fine It, it, it it doesn't you know, obviously our Blu-ray players and our TVs are only capable of displaying, you know, them at 24 frames per second. So it is what it is there. A uh, Devendra Hardwar, um, who is a, uh, a host on the Slash Filmcast, uh, he tweeted three tweets, which I'll have in the show notes. Uh, he said, so glad to be done with the Hobbit films and hopefully with 48 frames per second. The movie was OK. I didn't give a look about anything in it. Also, can we all agree CG orcs were a huge mistake? What a step down from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, and then he says, to be clear. Smog, the five armies used, and and the five armies use a ton of CG orcs, not just the lead dude. Feels like a video game compared with the Lord of the Rings orcs. And, and yes, the Lord of the Rings, it augmented with CGI at times, but most of the, and almost any time you were looking, you know, you were in close-ups with orcs, they were real people in costumes. You know, any of the primary characters were real people, you know, in makeup. And it, it, you've got two primary orcs in this film that were CGI, and they just looked incredibly bad, I think. And, and, and all the battles felt really cheap because, like, they didn't take the time to go out there and get the big sweeping shots of real people in New Zealand. Um, it was just – it was really frustrating to me. Um, so I, I really appreciated Devendra's tweets there. I would, t- I would have to agree. And, and here, here's my for, – for the humor value, here's my note. Uh, it says, the CGI, it burns. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, ironically, one thing I noticed about the other two films versus this one, you know, this one I saw in 48 was that Azog, the the primary uh, point of contention for the CGI characters, uh, he actually looked really believable and realistic in his motion in this portrayal at 48 frames per second, whereas he didn't look very well on the other two screenings I had seen and uh, from the viewings I've had of the movies at home. Um it, it, and this is kind of jarring to me, but going back to my complaint about the the 48 frame rate is that my, my only problem was with human beings, the actors motion, but any of the CGI characters looked really good. Interesting. And I don't know why that is, but they didn't look like they were. Um, yeah, they didn't look like they were worse. They looked like they were better off than a lower frame rate. Maybe, and this is, you know, requires more technical knowledge than I have, but maybe somewhere in this is the root of the problem of, you know, why the the visual effects look so inconsistent uh, in these movies. Mm. Yeah. Your, your contention would be that they were mastered for 48 frames per second and therefore look bad when we go to see them in standard. That, it's a possibility, uh, if, especially if that's you know what Peter Jackson is looking at the majority of the time, and I would imagine that would be. I I saw the second film uh, in 48 frames per second. I actually, unfortunately, saw it a second time in 48 frames per second. The first time I saw it in 24 frames per second. 
And I didn't think that it looked any better, but that was just me. Uh, and I was very tired when I saw it the second time because my wife really wanted to see it in 48. And so I went with her and it was late and, and uh, it was the only time we could do it. And I, I think I even fell asleep during part of it. <laughs> but uh, I didn't think that anything about the CGI looked any better. But that was just me. Uh, and it's certainly a valid possibility. I just think that he's focusing on the wrong things if that's the case. Mm, very possible. Another complaint that I had, uh, and, and here's my note, the force is strong with Legolas. <laughs> and, and, and this would be, you know, obviously the, the, mo- the, bi- the most primary example of what I'm talking about would be when he is climbing up rocks that are falling. Like, that's not even possible to do. <laughs> it's just physically not possible. As rocks are falling, you're falling with them. There is no way that you can... You can push off of a rock and and step well, up. They, it is possible in slow motion, TJ. <laughs> I I always had problems with Legolas in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when he would do stuff like this, and it just felt weird and fake. But this Legolas most of the time in this movie was so over the top on this stuff. I was just like, come on! If if this were the real world theology podcast, this would be my come on moment. Is when he's climbing up rocks that are falling. This is not the way gravity works. And when the rock is not attached to anything, you cannot use it to push your body up to the next level because your your force would be pushing down and that rock is already traveling down and it just doesn't work. Physics, people, physics. Very good point. Benjamin Button Legolas does not abide by the laws of physics. Uh, I would say that's true. <laughs> he uh, He's able to, to leap from very tall heights and hit the ground and not get hurt at all. <laughs> Uh man, that, that was that was a uh, that was pretty dumb. Dude, that is a good dislike. Okay, I'm gonna try to get through mine real quick uh, and just try to move fast here because we're we're starting to run long. So, um, I was frustrated by the fact that over half of the dwarves remain, for all intents and purposes, nameless. I mean, technically we know their names, but I cannot connect the names with the faces. They didn't have personality or character. I felt connected with all of the primary characters and all the characters that had dialogue in Lord of the Rings, I'm pretty sure I can tell you their names and what they were doing there in the story. I, I didn't feel that in this film. Like there were characters that had dialogue and that were there, but th- th- that remained characterless to me. And I don't understand how that's possible in a, f- in, in a film that got stretched into three films and there's less material. And so there's more time to focus on these characters. And yet somehow we're l- less connected to these characters than we would have been in the Lord of the Rings films. I, that, that's just really super frustrating to me. Um, I felt like the everything to do with Sauron was wholly unnecessary in this film. It all could have been alluded to and foreshadowed without having to do all the weird stuff with Galadriel and, and Elrond and Saruman and, and the weird banishing and Galadriel turning into the Dark Lady. Like, that was something that happened because of the presence of the ring, that and she was uh, going to take the ring from Frodo. That was not her personality when she wielded the light of... Uh, uh, whatever it was. I'm I'm sorry, I'm being a bad Tolkien nerd here. Um, and then El- Elrond and Saruman both have rings of power. Why weren't they helping Galadriel? Like the whole that whole thing was just weird. Um, okay, giant worms. They uh kind of burrowed through the ground, remember at the beginning of the of the battle with the orcs, and <laughs> then they were never seen or heard from again. Like, I don't understand why they were even there. They're just worms, TJ. They're, they're not going to fight. Okay. They, they belong underground. Okay. Uh, Bjorn uh, either should have been given more prominence or he should have been cut from this film. And if you're going to cut somebody, why not cut Legolas and Tariel and actually focus on Bjorn, who is actually a character that was in the book, um, where Tariel and Legolas were not. 
but as it is, he was dropped. He was literally dropped in for two <laughs> seconds, and then we never saw him again. Um, so that was just kind of weird. You know, I was thinking too. I was like, I was like, what a cool introduction Bjorn gets here, and <laughs> and then he was gone. Uh, my wife is actually, she must be able to hear me from the other room. She's texting me, Wereworms are mentioned in the book. <laughs> um, okay. And then um, this film, um, ultimately, the, the battle scenes and stuff uh, feels a little bit too clean. Um, and that's one of the things that were Lord of the Again, this is probably the same complaint as my CGI complaint, where, where somehow Lord of the Rings feels real and gritty, and, and you feel there, and you're in a real place. And somehow this feels... Like you're not in a real place. Um, it, it feels too clean. Um, this this is my last complaint. So you guys will be able to get a word in edgewise here. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's 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 where I'm at on that. All right, guys, take it away. Okay. Well, I, my last complaint is a, a minute one. This is really doesn't. This isn't a make or break deal. But uh, for all this suspensions of disbelief, this, there's this one that I do not want to give the film, and it's uh, the, uh this situation with Azog where he springs up out of the ice. To fight against Thorin, and when you see the movie, you'll know exactly what I'm referring to. It it doesn't. Uh, it was way over the top. Realistically, there is not a chance that it would be possible for this orc to get himself up out of the ice like that. While other orcs and goblins are just getting like knocked in the head and they die, or slapped in the face and they die, or you slash them across their 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 armor and they die. This guy, he won't die for reasons where he should die. Yeah. And uh, he just all of a sudden takes on like Captain American like super strength for no apparent reason. I, I just I thought that that was out of place and out of touch for these films. But you have to admit he is super orc, basically. I mean, this is the guy who had who had his arm cut off and returns to fight another day. But that's know? what I thought the Urukai were. And, you know, if you get your arm cut off, you just stuff a big metal sword through it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and just let it be icky there. Like, and, and by the way, that's another part where that, that CGI is just terrible. Like, don't you think there would be some, uh, like, really, like, ooze and gangrene and stuff coming out of the, where he's got that steel shoved through his arm stump? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's just too clean. It was cut with a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. All right. Uh, Joe, do you have more dislikes? No, that, I'll leave it at that. Clark, guys. do you have more dislikes? Uh, you know, you guys have covered a fair number of them, so I won't really, you know, repeat those since we are running long. I, I will mention, and um, I guess this falls somewhere between a like and a dislike, but uh, I wanted to see more of the dwarves, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. They, they've been, you know, pretty integral characters for the first two movies, and I felt like too many of them were just kind of shoved into being glorified extras in this movie. Yeah. Um, I, I forget what the dwarves name is. The one played by James Nesbitt. Um, but I really liked that guy and he had like nothing to do in this movie. Um, there were a few good scenes and, uh, you know, we've mentioned, like you mentioned the balance scene and some other moments, uh, with the dwarves where they do come into the spotlight tend to be very good. But, uh, yeah, in general, they, they felt, and I realize you have five armies plus a whole bunch of other peripheral figures to deal with in this movie, so there's not a lot of time, but uh, I wanted more of them. So maybe that maybe that's an extended edition thing. I don't know. James Nesbitt played Bofer. Bofer. I like Bofer. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, well, um, we do have some uh, listener questions that we can uh, get to here real quick. Um, Benjamin Curley asked a couple on a thread on Facebook that uh, that Joe had going. Um, so, Joe, that was your thread. Why don't you uh, Why don't you tell us the questions? And I actually have an answer for these here, but if you want to answer them, feel free. Yes, I think we should all take a stab at them. I think we've already uh, indirectly talked about some of them. Yes. And so uh, did it feel like Thorin's dragon sickness took him overnight? And I think that we all said kind of yes. But, Clark, you made a good observation that uh, he was being taken over by the sickness across the span of the t- t- first two films and in- going into this film. And uh, I have to agree, though, a little bit somewhere in between, like with Benjamin Curley and Clark's assessment, that it's unclear. And I actually think in in terms of like director's cuts, it will probably be there will probably be a scene that shows the moment in time where Thorin goes from showing symptoms of dragon sickness to suddenly he's got the full on sickness uh, and uh, it, that's something that w- it seems to be mysteriously absent. Like every time that Bilbo uh, starts to have a little like uh, weird obsessive moment, you know, compulsive disorder with the ring, we see that transition where he goes from "I am normal, Bilbo." Boo, doo, 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 doo. Oh, I have a ring in my pocket. Or pockets is you know, and, you know <laughs> that that moment happens on screen every time. So. Uh, it would be nice if we could get that in the, in this movie, but yeah, it was lacking at least ways in the theatrical cut. I, I had a little bit more of an issue actually with how quickly he recovered. Um, I realized that, you know, a slow protracted uh, recovery from that process doesn't really work with what the movie needs to do at that moment in time, but it is really sudden where he just kind of makes that realization and flips the switch and is like, okay, over this. It's just lucky that we had all that CGI to show us what he was going through on the gold floor. <laughs> um, yep. you, you skipped the first question, Joe, that Benjamin Curley asked, which I wanted to address, which was, was Dane CGI? And I found a Reddit thread. I don't know how reliable that is. Obviously, it's Reddit, so whatever. But uh, the, the, fir- the, the accepted answer or the, the prominent answer is he was apparently made CGI because Cannoli, a man suffering Parkinson's disease, could not remember his lines while filming. So the character was created digitally and he was able to do his lines later. That's according to a Redditor who claims to have a relative who worked on the shoot. So dot, dot, dot. How, and I, I actually saw that in a couple other places too. And I, as soon as I saw Dane, uh, and and the whole, it's just the weirdness of his movement. And again, this is a wildly inconsistent CGI, where you know you've got Gollum who looks doesn't look to, to seem to move strangely. And maybe that's be. And, and here's the thing: like I think sometimes if you try to make a human or a human like creature like a dwarf move realistically, it doesn't look right. Whereas Gollum, we have no frame of reference, so he looks fine. I could tell instantly that, that Dane was CGI. Like I said, this is weird. He looks like he should be an actor who is cast. What is up with this? So he also seemed to be a little camera shy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was that too. It was just weird. Um, so yeah, he apparently was at least in some part CGI from what we can tell. That's sad too about Billy Connolly. I like that guy. The, the Another question from Benjamin Curley was what about those flashback scenes? Would do you think that he was referring to the moment where um, Thorin was um, like uh, trying to come out of the dragon sickness? Because that was his question just before it. And if that's the case, I think it is a little bit jarring how at times when they show flashbacks, you actually see visual flashbacks. And at other times in this movie in particular, you just hear flashbacks. And um, I don't know. It was a, it was a little choppy, but it wasn't going to make or break the film. 
Yeah, I, I actually didn't mind that scene so much. It was a little jarring that, like, I would have felt like that would have been better if that was, like, his um, his journey to start the recovery process. And so the jarring thing to me was that he suddenly was well. I But the flashback scene itself wasn't so bad, I didn't think. I don't know if, Clark, you have an opinion on this or not. I just want to say that if we're being really technical, uh, everything except for the last 30 seconds of the movie is a flashback. Oh, well, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> zing. Yeah, I do. No, I don't, I don't really have an opinion. Okay. Yeah, zing. <laughs> okay. Um, I hope that answers your question, uh, Benjamin Curley. Um, Douglas Gregory uh, has asked why, and I think I actually alluded to this or addressed this at the beginning of the show, but he asked, why did they end up calling this whole series The Hobbit as opposed to fan fiction based on some elements of The Hobbit? And I think that's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, because it's the uh, Lord of the Rings expanded universe. Yeah, yeah, there you go. The expanded universe of the Lord of the Rings. I like that. That's what they should have called it. That's the way I like to think of it. Yeah. Last question from my friend uh, Kevin Schick. Um why did Jackson screw it up so bad after doing a decent jobs with Lord of the Rings sellout? Um, and, and I, I don't think that he, I don't know that it's a sellout as much as here, here's what I suspect has, has been going on. I know I've, I've talked about this before, but the, I suspect that what's happened is that Jackson has become a very powerful person and you, you don't tell Peter Jackson. No, I, I think the same thing happened. We're seeing the same thing happen with Christopher Nolan and we've seen the same thing happen with George Lucas, that he can do whatever. These people tend to do whatever they want, and there's nobody to rein them in anymore. Uh, and in addition, maybe, Clark, you're onto something there, I think, with when you talk about how um, he, he only shows up 50% of the time. Like, maybe he's not giving it his all anymore. I don't, I don't, know, if I, I don't know if sellout is the right way to look at it. Um, I, I don't think when he made the decision to split, and I do think that it was his decision to split the films. I don't think he was thinking about it from a money perspective, I think he really thought I have three films worth of material here, and and I think that somebody needed to rein him in, and they didn't. Yeah. You know, well, and uh, P- Peter Jackson is, you know, I- I've watched at this point, I've watched uh, about twenty hours of behind the scenes documentaries on the previous two Hobbit movies, um, so I feel like I've gotten a pretty good portrait of what things are like behind the scenes. And Peter Jackson is somebody who I feel like he he really does show up to work every day and he really does care about these movies and uh you know has his eye on the ball but uh frankly this series is not the passion project for him that lord of the rings was right. which is why he originally didn't plan to direct it and you know there's a scene in the behind the scenes featurettes that i watched where he learns that guillermo del toro is not going to be able to do it and he doesn't jump at the opportunity to take the reins. He, he doesn't really want to do this. He wants to know, is there somebody else who can handle this? Uh, can, is there somebody else who we trust to get this right? And inevitably, they come to the realization that there's nobody out there who's good enough, who's willing to make this huge commitment of spending two or three years of their life making Hobbit movies. And he says, okay, well, you know, we've committed to do this. The fans want this. I'm willing to to do it. But it's not that story that he was, you know, just desperate to tell that he knew he had a vision for to the same degree as Lord of the Rings. This is him, you know, taking a job. And the difference shows in the end result. I do like the Hobbit movies. I'll defend them uh, against a lot of criticisms that people throw at them. But it's not Lord of the Rings for a reason. And that's that Peter Jackson doesn't feel the way about the Hobbit that he does about Lord of the Rings. Mm, yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that that came up in the making of features because 
I, I don't think that Peter Jackson is uh, completely taken by just uh, the money he could make off of these films. So I'm glad to hear that. I, I have uh, high hopes for his future films. Hmm. And I know he wants to go off and do other things that are not grandiose and epic. Like, you know, one thing that we like about Joss Whedon is that we know that Joss has a style. He wants to continue to develop more stories in his particular uh, shtick. And that's a good thing. He, he He's really good at his thing. And it seems like he just wants to um, reach in and dig deeper and explore new avenues within his, his niche. Um, whereas Peter Jackson wants to actually produce different kinds of films all the, all together from what he has already made. Um, I wish him the best of luck with that. I sure hope he can pull it off. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, let's quickly give our star ratings and wrap this up. Uh, and I will go ahead and just say that I'm at three out of five stars, which is the lowest rating of any of the three films. I believe I gave uh, the first film a three and a half out of five and the second film four out of five. Uh, so this would be the lowest rated for me. And yet I do, I, I do consider don't don't take anything that I've said as me saying don't go see this film. I think you should see this and all, I think that you should – See all all six of these films. <laughs> um, I, I just think that there is a marked difference between this trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, and that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is much more satisfying and fulfilling in in all ways. So, uh, and and I just I just have a lot of frustrations with with what this what with what this what I think that this should have been two films. I think one there wasn't there was enough material for two, and I think one would have been pushing it. But I I, I wish that P- Peter Jackson's focus would have been on the things that mattered, and that he would have not bloated it, and that he would have made two films. But we have what we have, and I think they're all worth watching. So three out of five stars. Go ahead, Joe. I'm giving this film four out of five stars because much like Clark, I really really dug the last twenty to thirty minutes or so of the film because it, it tugged on the heartstrings. I, I was absolutely gripped by significant moments of the film. I, I felt like even though there were some uh, there was some choppiness and it lacked a lot of the muster that we got from the like the magic like we we heard from the critics' consensus of the Lord of the Rings films. This is still very much a Peter Jackson Middle Earth related film. Doesn't no, it's it's not going to be as good as the Lord of the Rings. But having enjoyed Lord of the Rings as much as I have and being a dedicated fan to the cause of these films, um, this was ultimately my favorite of the Hobbit films. And I can't wait to see it again. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. If someone asked me, Joe, would you go see this film tonight? Tonight, I probably I probably would again. I'd probably watch it again today. Hmm. Even though it's, uh, it's 1050 for you. Yeah, I actually would. Just okay. on a uh, you know, <laughs> well, you, Christmas. I'm sure you have the day bench. off tomorrow and everything. So, <laughs> I'm sure I do too. All right, Clark, lay, lay your star rating on us. Uh, I'm going to give it four stars out of five as well, um, for the reasons that Joe stated about what I had stated. <laughs> for, for the record, what was your star rating of the other two films? I remember Smog was four and a half out of five. I do not remember if my rating of the first film was three and a half or four Mm, out of five. It was one of those two. But uh, yeah, I found this a a rather satisfying conclusion to to the trilogy. Like its predecessors, it had moments of weakness. Um, It doesn't live up to the standard of Lord of the Rings, but 
Uh, as a conclusion to the two stories that have come before it, I found it satisfying and ultimately moving. Well, all of this has really made me want to go watch the extended editions of The Lord of the Rings, uh, of which, by the way, Return of the King is my favorite. Uh, but uh, I, I, may, I may have to do that over the Christmas break. You have seen those before, right, TJ? Oh, sure. Many times. Many times. Okay, good. Okay, just making sure. Whew, the way you said that, I was wondering. I was going to say you're in for some for some treats there. Oh yeah, no, I uh yeah, I love Lord of the Rings. I've seen the extended editions many times. Um next week, uh Joe and I will be talking about our top films of the year 2014. Joe's list may be incomplete or shorter since he was not on the podcast and didn't see as many films as me. I just want to throw that out there. That's a possibility. We'll compile a list of our favorite films. Um I will be traveling and uh, we'll just have my simple little USB mic with me and we'll not have the capacity to bring on guests. So it'll just be me and Joe next week. So that'll be fun. Um, so in the meantime, uh, between now and then, over the Christmas break, people will want to take their Christmas break and find out where to follow uh, all of us at. And Joe, uh, you, you know, you, you're, you're a great guy around. And Clark, people will probably want to keep up with you as well. So Clark, why don't you tell us where people can find you? Uh, they can find some of my movie reviews over at dvdverdict.com. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at 365movieguy. Um, there's another project in the works that both of you guys know about that I can't talk about quite yet, but the next time I'm on, I will. But uh, for now, yeah, those are the two spots. All right, Joe? I am underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter, and my website is intentionalsensibility.com. And I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter, and I also have a website. It's called moviebite.com. That's the website where you're getting this podcast at. So be sure to uh, check out the writing and stuff that I do there. My my volume of writing has been a little bit down because of the holiday season, but uh, it'll it'll come back up in the new year. And uh, I'm going to try to write a, a top list of the of my favorite films as well, and then we'll talk about that next week. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, they'll be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 119. Uh, that is where you'll find all the links to the things, the cool things that we talked about, the various times that I mentioned something would be in the show notes. Well, that's where you'll find them at. So you can also share that link with your friends if you want to send them a link to this podcast. And if you would, take the time to go to the iTunes store. If you've never done this before, go to, the, go to iTunes, open up the iTunes store, and search for MovieBite, and we will be the first... Uh, first thing to come up, so go there and rate us. Give us five stars. We would absolutely love that. And get this uh, get this podcast noticed by those who would care. And with that, we're going to go ahead and say our goodbyes. And also, I'm going to say Merry Christmas to you, gentlemen, and Merry Christmas to our listeners. Merry Christmas to you too. Thank you, TJ. Merry Christmas. Bye.